Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. And our brand new phone number, 0818-104-106. Hope the weekend went well for you. Listen, you couldn't make this up, this Djokovic story. You heard Rory in the sports news there give you the latest. It's not making the newspapers because, of course, the time difference with their 11 or 12 hours or what have you. But he's won his appeal against being deported or uh, kicked out of Australia, if you like. It's been an absolute, total and utter shambles. A complete and utter mess between the two government sections here, the national and the regional. And the minute it got into court, uh, the judge just nailed it straight away, saying that he was actually agitated uh, by it. You know, the point he says that, uh, he says I'm somewhat agitated about, is what more, the judge asked, what more could Novak Djokovic have actually done? Uh, there's the questions and answers online this morning. Uh, that uh, Novak Djokovic gave in an interview with whomever was interviewing him as to whether or not the visa would be would be uh, overruled and overturned. And he told them that he had COVID twice and that he recently had COVID and that he tested positive last month and that he recovered. And on that basis, two different in- eminent virologists, professors, scientists appointed by uh, the different sections of government in Australia <laughs> gave him the medical exemption on that basis. So what, in the name of God, was the national or the regional governments doing at all? So we still don't even know. Uh, it was, it was, there was, they told, the judge told the Australia to release him within half an hour and put him in a hotel that he wants to go into himself. And they're now saying that they may appeal that. So it's very confusing and it's far from over and it doesn't mean he'll be hitting the small ball this time next week. Not yet anyway. But it's certainly looking like he, prob- he possibly might be. Uh, so that's a story that uh, makes the news this morning, but uh, not the newspapers, more like online. Uh, meanwhile, what does hit print, though, is in the UK, they were saying at the weekend that there won't be a need for a fourth jab or a fourth booster. While meanwhile, here in Ireland, the front of the mail says the elderly should get a fourth vaccine. The uh, over 60s they're deeming, which is interesting to be deeming an over 60-year-old as elderly. But um, they're talking about more uh, boosters for those who are vulnerable. And they're also saying in the papers this morning that positive antigen results will be added uh, to your um, QR code and will be added to your cert and recorded from next week. Whose positive antigen test? Your own one, is it? So that's a story that makes the mirror this morning. But one of the issues, of course, that has very much raised its head now that the schools are back and we're into the new year is the run into leaving cert between now and uh, the back end of the, well, the back end of the autumn and the, and the early summer. Uh, because this is the time, of course, when Leaving Cert students really have to step up to the mark. Um, and principals want a kind of a hybrid uh, Leaving Certificate. And to just drill into that, what they want is maybe what we had in other years, where students firstly could have a choice between exams or accredited grades, or indeed they could have a blend or a hybrid of both. Um, because really they're having a very, very tough time of it. Um, certainly last year, and uh, you know it's still all up in the air, you wouldn't be able to do the kind of learning and study, for instance, under ideal scenarios for the Leaving Certificate in the times that we live in now. So that's a front page that makes the Independent today. And also, over the weekend, you possibly heard that there was uh, two different issues regarding the Healy Rays pub down in Kilgarvan. Uh, one of them showed um, some kind of a, an indoor gathering inside in the pub where there were no one wearing masks or there was no social distancing. And then there was video clips of it uploaded. And then apparently... 
there was another one, uh, the second one, which showed customers dancing on the tables after the annual Kilgarvan Fair in August. Do you recall those? Well, all of those were investi- investigated by the D- by the Gardaí and it went to the DPP. And the DPP has now said that there should be no prosecution uh, following the investigations into those possible breaches. I have no idea why, but that's what the DPP decided in spite of the video footage and the photographs and what have you. But the upside to, um, you know, as we head into the new year is the possibility that we could have festivals back again, uh, particularly uh, emphasising the uh, St. Patrick's Day Festival. In the Star this morning, they're saying that green lights will be given I hate the term Paddy's Day, but they use that anyway as we continue to try to get things back to normal. And another thing that's also noticeable is that the Mail this morning is saying that there's been a surge in demand for offices and office space, that maybe this working from home lock ain't all it's cracked up to be or won't be the way forward because there are more and more companies now bursting into life and looking for uh, office space. Very interestingly, this morning, there's an opinion piece in the Mail by Mary Carr, who, you know, we had the control of the price of alcohol. Well, the control actually was to put the price of alcohol up, actually, I suppose. That's that's the way they decided to control it. Rather sneaky way of doing it, where it makes more money for everybody, uh, but does nothing to help people with addiction problems. Mary Carr is asking the question this morning, well, if we can control the price of alcohol, why can't we do the exact same thing when it comes to energy costs and rents and maybe even house prices. I mean, they did it very quickly and very efficiently. Why can't they do the same with things that also matter in people's lives, including the cost of heating your home, renting a home or buying a home? Pat Phelan uh, was on primetime last week. Uh, The papers this morning pick up on that because Pat, of course, is a recovering alcoholic and takes every one day at a time. And they were asking him as to whether the minimum price of alcohol would reduce harmful drinking. I might give him a shout later on and chat in a little bit further detail with him over the next day or two. But it's a very interesting article, he said, because he worked in his dad's pub way back in the day when the price of a pint was 40 pence. And he says that if, you know, he says the pubs are still full. He says if people have followed it from 40 pence to £5 to £10 in a nightclub. He says, I don't think it's a a pricing thing. Uh, And he says that as a recovering alcoholic, he said the price of drink was irrelevant when he was drinking heavily. So that's the story that makes the the mail today. And our uh, conversations last week touched on alcohol and also cannabis. Times UK this morning has a survey saying that there are more and more over 55-year-olds now seeking mental health care for cannabis addiction. And then, of course, uh, the front of the examiner and the echo uh, talk of poverty and the cost of housing. And the examiner says they pull no punches. They just go straight for the juggler and they say one fifth of the population is living below uh, the poverty line. That's 20 percent. And that means that um, uh, more and more people every single year are being driven into poverty. And a lot of it is to do with the cost of housing and the cost of rent. And meanwhile, then the echo has page after page of dereliction, photographs of derelict buildings. Again, we ask the question, if you don't use it, then you should lose it. But they have derelict sites across the echo today, not just in the city. They're looking at photographs in front of me now up around Barrack Street, but they've also got dereliction sites down in the main streets in Mitchellstown, for instance. And at the same time, then, of course, Sinn Féin are the ones who are saying that they're going to make a huge difference if they get into power. Wait and see. But the Echo this morning quotes um, Jonathan O'Brien, who's the uh, political director for Sinn Féin these days. He says they're going to run eight candidates across Cork City and County. Eight candidates. And they intend to win all eight seats. The Sophie Toscan-Duplantier story makes all of the papers because the Gardaí are doing um, new, fresh investigations. One of them 
It has to do with um, a, an individual said to be a foreign national uh, known to um, Sophie Toscan de Plantier's late husband, Daniel, who they want to talk to. He's the guy who was spotted uh, following uh, Sophie in Skull uh, by the shopkeeper Marie Farrell on the day before Sophie was murdered. Now, there was confusion. You might have seen one of the documentaries. I'm not sure whether it was Sky or Jim Sheridan, uh, where at one stage it was said to have been Bailey outside the shop. Later, of course, that was recanted to say that it wasn't Bailey outside the shop. It was another individual. Well, it's that individual that the Guardian are looking for. And the sad, sad news of uh, Sinead O'Connor's son, Shane, uh, and his death over the weekend makes all of the papers. She's taken some time out to grieve the loss of her son, but she has vowed to fight on to get to the bottom of his death. And she's not happy with the Irish state. She is not at all happy with Tusla's involvement in his care. Um, But she um, had... um, Actually, she, she, she sent out a message to Donald Lunny, Shane's dad, and she said, I'd also like to thank Shane's father, Donald. You did your best too, Donald, and Shane adored you. And there are many photographs of uh, Shane O'Connor at all sorts of different ages in his life, um, and it's just heartbreaking. It really and truly is. And to be as famous as Sinead O'Connor is, uh, and to have so much attention in the media because of it. Uh, she needs time and she needs space at this stage and the tabloids have it on their inside pages today, uh, understandably I suppose to some extent. And there are a couple of light-hearted stories incidentally making the papers today. One of them has to do with the things that people leave behind in hotel rooms. God knows I could tell you a couple of stories on that one. I once had a buddy who found 10 grand uh, in, a, in a, a, a drawer in a hotel bedroom went down and gave it to reception, incidentally. Uh, another friend of mine checked into a hotel bedroom and opened one of the drawers there, and she found handcuffs, a whip, a bit of chain in it, all sorts of, would it be rubber or leather gear, what some people tend to wear uh, if they're getting a little bit amorous in the bedroom? Obviously, who was ever in there forgot it or left in a hurry. But the papers this morning are saying some of the things that have been left behind in travel lodge hotels include a dog called Beyonce, a full drum kit, a 1940s typewriter, a suitcase full of Blackpool rock. I don't know if it's the rock we used to get at Kids Around on Holidays that you ate or whether it was actually Blackpool rock. I don't know whether it was, I assume it was in Blackpool on the north side of the city that they're talking about. Others include a drone, a six-foot feathered angel wings, an ancient coin collection, and a Jimmy Choo Cinderella shoe. Just the one of them, apparently. The single Cinderella shoe. If you have any kind of quirky things you found in hotel last last year, I had a friend who had who checked into a hotel up the west of Ireland, um, and she thought that she lost an earring under the bed, so was creeping under the bed trying to find it. And what did she find? A little baggie of cocaine. Um, don't know how it ended up under the bed, but there it was nonetheless. Oh, and one final story. Uh, I'm not at all worried myself personally in the old life that I live with regards to best before dates or used by dates. I never have been. I always go by taste or smell or how it looks. If it looks good enough to eat, I will eat it. Apart from tripe and trichine and whatever other things like that. But supporting the Times UK are saying used by dates on milk are to be scrapped by one of the biggest supermarket chains in the UK. Morrison's are saying they're they're advising people instead to carry out the sniff test on milk. Now, that's a tall order first thing in the morning to ask somebody to sniff sour milk. It's not the most inviting smell in the world. But you know the way it is with milk. You can never really tell until you use it. You can never really tell with milk until it hits the tea. 
And then it can do all sorts of things. It can go kind of um, clumpy. It can go spotty. Or it can be fine. Or it can be a combination of all of the above. But the sniff test for me has worked for many, many years. And I'm glad to see that a little bit of common sense is now prevailing. Oh, and speaking of tea, you know those calendars you get? I love them. I have one on my desk there down below in the office. And you rip off each day. And it gives you a different saying each day. Annoying sayings. But it also tells you different things that happen in history. They claim on my calendar on the desk today that tea arrived here on this day from India back in 1839. The Neil Prenderville Show. Anyway, text 0868104106 if any of those stories interest you or anything else that may be on your mind. Listen, I'm going to get straight to the phone lines. Darren Mullane uh, is a driving instructor with Mullane School of Motoring. He joins me by my phone. Darren, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? I'm well, and thank you so much for all of the back and forth photocopies that you sent me with these individuals. Um, it all has to do with the, um, you know, there are all sorts of fake things that can be bought online now. All sorts of things under the sun. You can get fake IDs. You can even get fake QR codes now for vaccination certs. You can get a fake passport. You can even buy fake college degrees. But you're interested because in your profession, people will now sell fake driving licenses, Yeah. Yeah, and what even annoyed me even more was the fact that they're under sponsored links. So it's paid advertising through Facebook. So they're targeting people on Messenger with ads and they're targeting people on Facebook with ads. Oh, it'll just pop up as an ad? Yeah, it'll come up as a sponsored link. What does it say? Verified Irish driving license documents. So they're selling fake driver's licenses, fake um, Terry test certs. How would I get, so how would I get a fake driving license? I messaged them and I told them that I had a NEL license, a learner permit, and I couldn't pass the driving test. And they offered me a full driver's license for €850. In two instalments, apparently. In two instalments. Now, I'd be of the opinion I'd send the money off and I'd never again hear from them. You think? Or else I'd get a license that would be completely and utterly... Dud. But what people don't realise, the minute that that licence number is ran, for an insurance company, your driver number is unique, it's like your tax number. So the minute that a guard puts that into the system to give you penalty points or anything, so that, that they have they have number plate reading cameras now and everything on the guard cars. So the when you were back and forth with them, you're saying that the first time you have an issue with uh, a traffic offence or an accident or a checkpoint, you're caught, is what you're saying, isn't it? You're caught straight. The minute any guard runs that licence, you're caught. Okay. Because, okay. now, they also claimed to be working in conjunction with the RSA IT department. I They're saw that. We work in collaboration with yeah. instructors, and yeah. I work with database tech of the Road Safety Authority. Yeah, and there's no way in art that anybody from the RSA or any driving instructor would be involved in this. All right. Okay. Okay. So you say that, did you say any of that to them? No, I just literally went up as far as the transaction and how to get the license and I blocked them. What did they ask you for ahead of um, processing your fake license? They asked me for a copy of my learner permit, a passport photograph, and my first installment of the EFS, the half of the EFS. No, they also asked you for your PPS number. And my PPS number. And that's dangerous in itself, because now, yeah. now they have a front and back a photograph of your, of your valid L plate, or your license, L license. They also have your signature, and they also have your PPS. They also have your email. They now can go off and rob your identity. Absolutely. And it's a no, it, 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 also what I found strange about it was they're using a 089 phone number. 
Now, nothing against the 89 phone numbers, but like that's something like I think that's Tesco Mobile or Leica Mobile. So you can pick them up anywhere. All right. OK. Is it, but maybe it needs to be untraceable for the job that yeah. they're doing for you, you know? Like you can pick up a Leica Mobile SIM card for free in any petrol station. Here's what here's what I was thinking about this this morning that that they're actually not going to send you a license. They're engaged in identity theft, and you're going to pay them eight hundred euro to allow them to steal your identity. Yeah, it, it's mad, all right. And to be honest about it, it's going on. It's going on a long time, right? And it's going on quite a long time. And I've reported it numerous times to Facebook. Sometimes they take it down, but they're back up then the following day with a new business page. Yeah, and do you think this is all happening in Ireland with the number like 35389? Um, I don't think so. Think I think it's overseas? I, I think it's overseas because I spoke to the Gardaí about it before and they told me that it would be hard if it's out of their jurisdiction. But it might be in the jurisdiction of the Republic yeah. if, it's an 08, if it's an 089 um, page-to-go phone. The biggest problem with these people is the chances are nobody ever gets to meet them. But do you know of anybody that ever got a fake full driving license from them? I don't. I don't. I've never seen it. Because, like, when someone comes to me and hands me a learner permit, I have to run the driver number and I have to upload their EDT lessons. So if that license is not valid, it'll come up like the license is not valid. Like, if I go to upload an EDT lesson and the license isn't valid, it won't allow me to put it through because it'll say this license is not valid. Yeah, but at what stage when you're li- would your license actually be run through by a guard? They will look for it on the side of the road, won't they? Or they will, tell you pr- they will ask you to produce it within 10 days. You go into the guard station, they just write it into a book. Not no more. They put it into a pulse system. No, they have a computerized Oh, system. forgive me. Do they? Yeah, so like, if you're stopped, they'll put your license number into a pulse system. So that the guard, then we just say you get stopped in Mitchellstown. Yeah. And a guard says, produce your insurance to a guard station of your choice. And you say, I'll hand mine into Anglesey Street. So the guard then in Mitchellstown just has to press a button on his computer to okay. see if you hand it into Anglesey Street. Okay, well, that's how you're going to get caught. You know, it's fine having it, and but what use is it to you if you're ever asked if for you, it? If you commit a traffic offence and you're getting penalty points, they all have handhelds, no the guards. They don't write tickets no more. So your driving license now is tapped into a computer and it's sent off to the National Driving Licensing Authority. So if you are stopped by a guard and that happens and it comes back as fake, you're in more trouble now than you ever were. I, I, I would imagine you have no insurance and as well because you don't have a valid driver's license. Um, I think insurance covers you for anything, regardless of whether you're in the right, in the wrong, have a license. Um, or driving if you or- look at your insurance, sort down at the end of it, it will say providing you have held or have held a driving license. Okay, now, fair play. You're well, you're covered. the instructor. It's been very much tightened up then since back in the day. You're covered. If you drive your car and your license expires and it's an accident and you have an accident and you pull out your license and you go, oh God, it's expired last month. I would imagine you're covered by insurance because your policy of insurance says providing such driver holds or has held such license and is not disqualified from driving. But if you have never held a driver... Ah, yeah, well, if you've never held one, they probably look at it differently. Tell me this. Do you not think that maybe the 850 divided into two, which comes in at, what, 425, that they take the first instalment and you never hear anything from them again? They've got all the details they want from you and they're gone. Well, 
Personally, I think 850 will get anyone a genuine license by doing the test. <laughs> 12, 12, 12 EDT lessons vary from four to 500 euros. Some people couldn't pass the test. Others don't have time. Others are nervous. Others well, just want the quick fix. Anyone that can't pass a driving test, now, to be honest about it, the driving test is a 25-minute test. It's five to six kilometres, and you're allowed to make nine minor mistakes. Now, anyone that can't pass that test shouldn't really be under it. Okay, okay, okay. Would you give me Would you give me a driving test over the next couple of weeks just to see if I'd pass or fail? Oh, I, fail I'd I failed it the last that. time. Yeah, I'd love to. I failed it with a retired driving um, tester years yeah. back. Yeah, I failed it before I left. I failed it at the T junction at Sarsfield Road. Yeah. <laughs> I went out of the test centre. <laughs> Well, the thing about the driving test, right, and I always say this to people, the driving test doesn't determine whether you're a good driver or not. It just determines whether you're a safe driver. <laughs> Jury's out on that one as well. Anyway, let's see if anybody listening um, has actually ever bought one of those. Just on the QT, I won't give out their details to anybody at all, but I would like to hear if anybody ever got one uh, and received one in the post and is using one. Uh, be interesting to see what they have to say on that regard. Because you can buy anything online now, as I say. I mean, there's a guy downtown, I saw a text there for a while ago saying, I saw a QR code for sale in town. A guy was offering it on the streets. Yeah, I'd I say anything man-made man will be, you know. But like, if you look at an Irish driver's license now, I'd imagine the old paper ones might have been easier to interfere with. But like, you, the new driver's licenses, you hold them up to the light. There's more sensors and lines yeah, okay. in them. Okay. than anything like okay. alright let's see if anybody has one of them engaged with them or got burnt with them by them 086-8104-106 by text um, there's a text here wondering I don't know whether it's male or female uh, have they gotten rid of parallel parking on the driving test yet um, or indeed let's add to that um, starting or taking off on a hill the hill start is always been there there's only three manoeuvres done on a driving test the hill start the turnabout and the left hand reverse You've never, we've never actually done parallel parking on a driving test in Ireland. So they've never asked people to parallel park? Never. To, like see, the vi- to see the video of the guy. <laughs> Anybody see that? Um, it must have been a CCTV camera. He was trying to get into a parking space, right? There's a car, another car, and a gap between the two of them. Uh, he drove front face in, right? So the back of the car was out. So he didn't know what to do. He walked around it four or five times. It's a big car, an SUV, and he dragged it. He dragged the back of the car in. Literally, just pushed it in. Did you see that video? I haven't seen it, no. But you, could you do that? I wouldn't imagine oh, so, but like... He's a small-looking guy, like. Like, if you pull a car into a parking space and you're slightly over the lane on a test, you're allowed to fix it. You're only marked for incorrect parking if you actually leave the vehicle in the incorrect position. <laughs> It's a pretty funny video. Anyway, I'll take you up in that offer so in the next few do, weeks, see if I can pass a driving test, all right? Do, and I, I, give, you, I give you a nice, easy route, you know, around... I know, no, do, do whatever, do whatever they I, do. Do whatever give, they do. I give you a nice, easy route. Oh, about quarter to four on a Friday, we go to Bishopston. <laughs> on, on a wet, windy, damp day, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and I give you an uphill reverse and stuff. There's no problem. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, Darren, thanks for that. No Cheers and well. Take care. Text 0868104106. Anything to add to that? Back after the break. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM.
104 to 106 Red FM. i say good morning to a buddy of mine, Pat Power. He sent me a very funny uh, TikTok video over the weekend of the Port McGee comedian Bernard Casey. He's one heck of a funny guy and it has to do with uh, taking his driving test. So it's a TikTok video of him sitting in the car and he's being tested by a tester next to him. It's a funny piece, about two, two and a half minutes long. I won't spoil it because it really is very funny. Uh, but if you want to have a look at it, we're going to put it up on our, our, my Twitter page uh, a little later this morning and also I'll share it on my own Instagram later on. He's sitting there driving the car with the tester next to him and it's hilarious. It's one of the funniest videos and, and it just goes to show that the kind of work you can do online now with limited technology. You don't need a whole lot to do funny gags like he can do, same for instance, on a mobile phone, whereas before you need entire huge massive camera crews. So it's brilliant. And this is a very funny one, particularly if you've um, you know got a test coming up or you've failed a test in the past. You'll love it. Actually, it's up on our Twitter page now. So go and have a look at it. Uh, me, that's Bernard Casey from Port McGee's, one hell of a funny guy. Robert, 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 be fair. He says, I don't understand why the top male tennis player in the world would even want to play in the Ram backwater which is Australia uh, in the first place why you don't want to go there and to be treated like an arriving convict from Europe is just typical of those descendants of the original old lags who managed to survive the place for a few centuries past it's dog rough there Uh, the white settlers of this all but deserted desert says Robert I'm quite sure an Australian like listening to this or listening to that text will take umbrage but that's Robert's uh, opinion on the treatment of uh, Novak Djokovic on Friday uh, we were chatting with uh, Paddy Hyde what a really interesting guy his time here in Cork his time as a professional diver and the things that he did in his life astonishing story I was so happy to catch up with him but part of the conversation he said that in his workshop because he sculpts with metal now uh, on the north side of Cork and does so very effectively. He's a really talented man. But he has in his workshop, which he discovered, a plaque of William Dwyer. Um, William Dwyer, of course, Bill Dwyer, the man behind uh, Sunbeam. Uh, And I said that I do my very best to track down a member of the Dwyer family. And you know what? Kevin Dwyer was listening and got in touch. So more of that in, on that in a few minutes' time. But also listening was Breda Sheehan. Now, Breda worked all her life in Sunbeam, right up until its closure in the early 1990s. And she joins me by phone. So, Breda, thanks so much for taking the call. Good morning. Good morning. All your life, they say. Um, was it your first job? Um, it was, actually, yes. I started in Sunbeam when I was 15. Okay. Now, I wasn't there all my life. I was going and coming. So at the age of 15, you would have finished school and straight in, is it? Yeah. You couldn't actually start in Sunbeam until you were 15. And what decade are we talking, do you mind me asking? Um, I started in Sunbeam when I think it was 1963. All the way up to the closure in 93, I think, wasn't it? Um, it closed in 1990. That's right, burnt down in 93, wasn't it? Or 2003, I should 2003. say. 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I worked then for the receiver. There was a few of us kept on, you know, to clear out the warehouses. And when it was, and back in the 1960s, would that have been its heyday? Like at one stage, it was about 4,500 people working there. It would have been the heyday. It would have been very busy. But when I started work there at 15, and we had one day a week off. Where we went to school, we had to go to school one day a week. Isn't that amazing? Did you have, were you sitting an exam? No, no. You just, you couldn't legally leave school until you were 16. The one day a week. So I had to go to the one day a week for a year. 
That was a great thing because you got a day off work. What were you doing in Sunbeam? Did you move around different departments? I think I worked in every department. I worked, I started initially in the half hours with the socks. And um, I was, I trained to be an invisible mender. What's that, so, an invisible so mender? Any, any, an invisible mender was anything that came off of the machine and had a flaw in it. Or, you know, if it wasn't perfect, you had to make sure it was perfect. And you could make it perfect, unbeknownst, and nobody would know the difference. Nobody would know the difference. And what garments? You mentioned socks. Underwear as yeah. well, I think, yeah? What else? I was, initially, I was on socks. And then I got married in 66 and I left Sunbeam. And then I went back again in 68. I started up um, an evening shift from 6 to 10. They were actually, that was the heyday. They were really busy. So they started up an, an extra shift. So I went back there that time. And then I went to the outerwear, which was the knitwear. And what would the knitwear range have been like? Sweaters, jumpers, things like Everything. that? Everything, yeah, all, all, all jumpers, cardigans. Very, very busy. And then they were exported all over Ireland and possibly all over the world. They were, they were. And was there a great sense of camaraderie with all of the people there? You must have made an awful lot of friends. An awful lot of people fell in love and married out of Sunbeam, didn't they? <laughs> they did. They did. You know, but I was going and coming all my life, you know. Yeah. Somebody was very good to me in a sense that when I got married and I had children, you know, it was always kind of, it was like a security blanket in a way because I was always able to go back at Christmas when they were busy. And I was and were they good? Were, were they good to work for? Was the money good? The conditions and that? Well, the money wasn't that good, you know. No, it, you know, it was average, I suppose, for the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, I suppose. I suppose you could compare it to minimum wage today. But did, yeah. You could. You could. You earn extra on production. You know, you could. You you could supplement your your basic wage with, with whatever you produce. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there were there were a lot of different clubs there, weren't there? I mean, I know you used to go away for a day every now and then, didn't you? You take the train or buses and uh, go on tours. Wasn't that the case? I only ever remember going away once into a Killarney, <laughs> and we had a great time. And would the company pay for all of that? I'm was sure it into, was it into a fund, or did they double up on the fund? I can't even remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we went on a bus. So I don't remember paying for it. So maybe the, bu- the company supplied the bus. And did it just get quieter over the years then? Was that the case? Business-wise? Well, from a worker's point of view, it didn't get quieter, you know? Um, even when it was taken over in the 80s, I, it didn't make any change really to the workers. Everything stayed the same. Yeah, but the workforce started to, to drop. I mean, if it was four and a half thousand at one stage, it slowly but surely got less and less, didn't it? Uh, it did, I'd say. Yeah. Not that I wouldn't have noticed because I would have been working away, you know? Yeah, I And know. on the outer where the, I, I'd say we'd have had the same amount of people working there. Um, Kevin Dwyer, I was talking talk to him in a minute, he said in the in the Hollyball Christmas time that his granddad was a very colourful, outgoing character, very forward-thinking. He believed a happy workforce was a healthy one. So he gave all his employees access to free medical, free dental treatment, and a weekly bath. Did you get a weekly bath? I did. How did, I that, did. How did that work? It was brilliant <laughs> because I lived in Spring Lane and we didn't have a bathroom. You know, they were only old. They were only cabin-type cottages, do you know what I mean? 
Oh, absolutely. Many places there, like that. They're yeah. still there now today. I lived there up to the time I got married. Yeah. And after I got married again. But we didn't have a bathroom. And what you do is you'd, you'd have to book your time for your bath. <laughs> and then you'd go up and they had a shower room and a, a ba- and, and cubicles with, with baths in them, you know? <laughs> they were all private. But you'd go up and she'd have the bath filled for you with hot water. You got your towel and she gave you a carbolic soap and you had to bring your own face cloth. The bathing department for sunbeam. How long, how long would you get in the bath then? Well, I'd say maybe 30 minutes. <laughs> that wasn't too bad. <laughs> no, no, it was fantastic. And <laughs> there, you was were, only one, but, there was but, only one drawback. Well, you had you to were, share the water, was it? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, it was spotlessly clean. <laughs> oh, it was actually spotless. There was only one drawback. If you washed your hair, you had to go home with your hair wet. <laughs> you know? But I don't even think there was hair dryers at that time anyway. And did you stay in touch with many of the people that you worked with down the years? Well, I, I, I would know, I would, you know, I, I, I'm 73 now, so I've kind of lost touch with, with everybody, really, you know? I know, I know, I know. But you joined the Blackpool Folklore Group, didn't you? No, uh, I worked with them on a false scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this was way later. What happened to me was I was listening to the radio on Friday morning, and I heard... I, I, you know, I was, it was just on, on the background and I, I just heard the bit about the plaque. That's right, and yeah. It, ju- it just brought back memories. And I was working in the... We were out in Sunbeam and we were working in one of the buildings, you know, the, where the clock was, the clock tower. Yes. It was the clock place. And um, I was there one day and I was going out the hallway and there was this lady, she was a very elegant looking lady now, coming down the hall she looked lost and I asked her if I could help her and she told me she introduced herself and told me who she was she was Dodo DeWire and her father-in-law had owned Sunbeam and then her I think her husband was Jacqueline and she had come out to look for the plaque away. Uh, on the wall so I said to her now this looking back now this was 2007 so it was four years after this, somebody had burned down. So I went, I said, you know, I brought her into the office where I worked and I, I said, I'll go and look for it for you. And I went out. Now, where I worked, I didn't need to turn the corner where the canteen was. So I hadn't been, I had never noticed that the plaque was gone. So I actually got a shock when I looked and it wasn't gone. there. Yeah, gone and it's been gone and missing, gone. although it's been very safely looked after for all of those years because so, uh, Paddy Hyde has it. Yeah, I went back to her and I told her, you know, somebody must have taken it for safekeeping. I said, you know, I, I don't know, but I'll make inquiries for you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I did. I inquired around of a few people that were working there. At the time, nobody had any idea where the plaque was. And did you surmise that either it had been thrown out or taken? I thought it had been stolen. Yeah, actually. okay, okay. And That's what, that was what I assumed. And she must have gone away disappointed, did she, Dodo Dwyer? She, she, no, she didn't. She, I'd say she was disappointed, but she didn't say it. All right, okay. So I asked her if we could interview her, and she agreed to an interview, and myself and a colleague went up to her house in Glanmire, and she invited us into our home 
and she gave us an interview. Go away. And I have the audio of that, which I'll listen to later on, and I appreciate you passing it on. And she passed away at the age of 96 in 2016. Is that right? Well, I only, I actually only, I only looked that up yeah. over the weekend. Yeah. You know, but she was a lovely, lovely lady. I know, I know, I know. And must have a very interesting stories to tell. Well, she had a very interesting childhood. <laughs> you know, her mother was an opera singer. And she had come from Edinburgh in Scotland. Married into the Dwyers, yeah. And she married... No, her, her mother, Dodo's mother. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, she married... Um, I think he was a, a Dr. Horgan, an ear and throat specialist. Yeah. So she'd have been, Dodo Dwyer would have been uh, William Dwyer's daughter-in-law, yeah. Yes. Gotcha, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, sadly, she has passed away, but we have discovered the plaque. And, in fact, I've also received contact from a gentleman who I hope to talk to as soon as possible, but he's, he's not available right now. He has a bust of the head of William Dwyer as well, and he wants to give the bust back, just like Paddy Hyde wants to do something right with the actual plaque itself. That's fantastic. You know, that, I, yeah. I was so happy, you know, when when the plaque was discovered. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I'm 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 actually involved with the Blackpool Historical Society. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very into local history. Okay, okay. And you know, um, I'd love to see it going back to to the Dwyer family and leave it up to them as to what they want to do with it. Well, it's been lovely talking to you, Breed. And after the break, I'm going to have a chat with Kevin Dwyer. All right, so we'll put okay. that to him and chat with him a little bit. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the air. Much obliged no to Brida. Sharing Bye-bye. your story. Appreciate it. Back after Bye-bye. the break. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now on the new number 0818-104-106. If you missed my chat on Friday with uh, Paddy Hyde regarding Sunbeam and the plaque and his incredible life as a professional diver, then you'll pick it up on the podcast and online because uh, it's well worth listening to. He's an incredible story, a fabulous guy. Uh, Novak Djokovic, of course, has been making the news this morning. He has won his case against deportation from Australia. It's not across the line yet, of course, uh, because they're talking about um, taking some other legal action against him now. So we'll have to see what happens there. But a lot of comments from you guys on this already. Burr says, and the Australian people pay his legal fees. Brilliant. Dennis says, um, non-residents have to prevent a vaccination certificate. Uh, the judges had the judges had the last say in the matter. Well, it's either a vaccination certificate or it's a proof of recovery from COVID. And he had that. And apparently when the judge saw that, he said, what's this all about? The guy has all of the certs he needs. Declan says, money talks yet again. Always seems to be one rule for the rich and different rules for the middle class and the poor. Dave says, they never had a leg to stand on in the first place. And Philip says, I hope he wins the tournament. You know, I was thinking over the weekend, even people who have no interest in tennis or the Australian Open or anything to do with tennis are interested in this story and may well then decide to watch a bit of tennis. Jim said, the floodgates are open now for every unvaccinated person. Pat says, how many others did the Australian customs stop and deport for the same reason the last weekend just gone? They all have legal challenges to their deportation now and a recourse perhaps to financial compensation if Djokovic is left to stay. I think this is the start it's just becoming farcical. Um, Liz says, just saw it on television. Oh, I think he's just been rearrested. Well, I don't know anything about that. Alex says, I'm not the biggest fan of this guy. However, his fight against the Australian government is fabulous. No one should be obliged to be vaccinated. It's a personal choice. For those that say it's irresponsible to be unvaccinated, 
I have one question. What's the chance that an unvaccinated or a vaccinated person of getting sick of COVID? What's the chance of a vaccinated person transmitting the virus? I'll give you the answer. The very same. Claire says, wow, good for him to fight against injustice. Uh, Brendan says, an absolute joke just shows when you have money, you can break any rule and get away with it. Michael agrees. He says money talks. And Suzanne says, Novak may be number one, but that should not make him an exception to the rule. Send him back. Um, It's been... An evolving story. Also, a lot of it is to do with the fact that they're 11 hours ahead of us. But Novak Djokovic, Neil, has allegedly been arrested by the Australian government despite being granted permission to complete this year's Australian Open on Monday. Uh, he, of course, won the last year's tournament. He was initially denied entry to the country after seeing his visa revoked upon his arrival early this month. Thank you for that text. Maybe that is the case. Um, as to whether or not he's been rearrested, I don't know. Um, I'm just watching different news feeds on it. But if it's changing, and I doubt it will, over the coming hours, mind you, they'll all be going to bed for a while, I would imagine. Probably have been already. Uh, there'll be more news on that first thing in the morning, I would think. Anyway, text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 0818104106. Lots to do after 10 this morning, including uh, Kevin Dwyer, whose granddad was uh, William Dwyer. That and lots more besides. Back after the break. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0868104106. Red FM. The latest now is uh, on Sky News this morning. They're reporting that it is not true that Djokovic was arrested. Apparently, it's Djokovic's dad has been saying that Nova Djokovic was arrested uh, by um, authorities at his lawyer's office. But Sky News this morning is saying... Uh, yeah, there is lots of confusion, etc., etc. There's conflicting reports, but he has not been arrested despite claims made to Sky News by his father. Now, apparently, Djokovic's family are giving a press conference at 11 o'clock our time. So if there's any audio on that that we can bring to you, I certainly will. Um, I don't know how lengthy that press conference will be. We'll keep an eye on it at 11 o'clock. So Sky News saying it ain't true. Uh, so we'll come back to it at that stage. Listen, we've got some really great prizes for you this week for a new year and a new you. Satori Clinic are based in Cork uh, and they have given me 150 vouchers to give away, 150 or vouchers to give away every day. Not one, but two a day. So we have 10 for the entire week, okay? And they have a variety of therapies and skills that could interest you. Aimed at treating the majority of health disorders, they say, um, like injury, pain, stress, depression, fertility issues, and your general well-being. They do a lot of different things, including acupuncture, cupping, and acupressure, and things like that. Now, we all know of the benefits of acupuncture, uh, for instance. So, we have these vouchers to give away right across the week. And it's uh, like it's a new year and a new you. Um, So, our mechanic has to do with new. All right? So, it's very straightforward, not very challenging. I just need you to identify artists and titles uh, of three songs. We do this in the past with different competitions, so it's no different in that regard. So, with regards to a new year and a new you, when I open the phone lines around about a quarter to midday today, you need to be able to identify artists and titles. Artists and titles in the right order. Have a listen. you got a friend in me. Straightforward enough. Uh, in one case, it might be in the title of the artist. In another case, it might be in the title of the song, but they all feature new. So artists and titles in the right order. I'll play it a couple of times again between now and a quarter 
to midday and we'll open the phone lines you could win one of our vouchers alright that's courtesy of ourselves and Satori Clinic um, here's an interesting question for you just ahead of the 10 o'clock news Texter says I was just wondering has anyone else noticed that they have changed the Tanora taste yet again and it's not the original formula instead they've changed the formula and added sweeteners and it tastes not the same in your mouth. Uh, it's a lot more watered down, I believe. I'm just wondering, really, could you mention it uh, when you're on air to see if anyone in Cork has tasted Tanora recently um, and as to whether or not they have changed the formula. I can't say with any amount of authority on it because it's been a while since I tasted Tanora. And I think if I tasted it now, I would love the taste of it. But to anybody who drinks it regularly, they possibly uh, might uh, notice a difference. Apparently, Texter says, do we have to set up a campaign now to get the original Tanora back on our shelves? I'm sure it's not just me that thinks this. The same with Fanta and a lot of the original drinks. How can they call them original when they keep changing them? Uh, Fanta Orange in Belgium is a completely different taste to Fanta Orange in Ireland, for instance. A lot of the time I think it has to do with sweeteners or no sweeteners. I have no idea. But I certainly put it out there. Anybody noticed a different taste to Tanora? Text 0868104106. Hi, it's Connor. Join me Sunday from 7 for Green on Red, bringing you the biggest, the best, and newest names in Irish music. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. And you can text 0868104106 and I see lots of texts coming in. And people love a bit of nostalgia. My chat on Friday with uh, an incredibly interesting man, um, really and truly, the story that he told about his life, uh, particularly when he went uh, diving, when he was down uh, um, under the sea, uh, certainly with uh, regards to the Betelgeuse, uh, Whidian Island, Whidian Oil Disaster, and also the Air India crash site, Paddy Hyde, and then his life on the north side and the sculpting and the metalwork that he does and the fact that uh, his workshop is out as part of the complex that once was, uh, the Sunbeam. Um, and he found, of course, the plaque of William Dwyer. And we were chatting earlier on, and indeed uh, a lot of texts came in on it, and I promised you to chat with Kevin Dwyer of the Dwyer family. He joins me by phone, delighted to eventually get to chat with him. Kevin, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? It's just lovely chatting with you um, because everybody has a huge interest in Cork nostalgia and particular stories, you know, that might, um, you know, ring bells with people who work there or families working there. And in your case, it was it it was Sunbeam. But did you hear did you hear my conversation with Paddy on Friday? Oh, not, no, I, I listened to the podcast and oh, I absolutely, nice. I absolutely loved it. And it, it's very interesting because, you know, aside from the sign, which we'll get back to in a moment, yeah. Paddy is, a, is a, exactly my age. We're both 77. And there, there were three comparisons in our lives um, that are absolutely the same, which is quite amusing. First and foremost, we both worked out at Millfield at a certain point in time, which was sort of one aspect then he was talking about the diving work he was doing after the Air India crash in 1983. And in actual fact, in Cork, I was working for Barclays Bank in, in Cork. And when the plane went down, Barclays Bank in London got on to us and said, oh, you're looking after Air India. And uh, when the executives came to Cork, they, were, they had an appalling uh, problems on their hands. They had the a Hindu has to be put to rest within a very short That's period right. of time. Yeah. They were dealing with the officialdom and the families and then they were dealing with me for their money, which was, you know, yeah. I would at least be able, you know, look after them. But there was that comparison that Paddy and I had both a, a 
contact with Air India. And then the, the final part of Paddy's story, the very, very sad uh, story of the child that got drowned in, in the River Blackwater. That's right. Yeah. Um, you, you, in, 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 in your previous interview now with Breda a few moments ago, she was talking about my, my, my granny, Rita Horgan, the, the, the opera singer from, from Edinburgh, yeah. who came to Cork. She was, she was um, performing in the opera house, got a throat infection, was referred to James um, Borg, my grandfather, and ended up marrying the doctor. But the, the, the story goes in a sad step that the grandpa was a very keen um, fisherman and he actually had been fishing um, at near Bridgetown Priory at Tuscan Ridge and he actually drowned in the River Blackwater and his body was found 10 days later at Ballyhooley Bridge. Who? Um, my, my, my grandfather, um, I J- did, James. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. The, the, he, he, that was in 1955. But no, it's not amazing connections with Paddy Hyde's life. Yeah, when you talk about it, there are three little comparisons there. So your mum was your mum was Dodo Dwyer then. Oh, she was absolutely, and I and I I love Breed especially a few moments ago. You know, meeting my mum and and going and being interviewing her in her home and and everything else, which which was a lovely bit of nostalgia. And were you aware that she had gone looking for the plaque? I, I wasn't. My mum never told me that, you know. And and um, you you hopefully received an email from me on Friday with photographs of the plaque. I did. Thank you. Yeah. And I saw you sent some fantastic photographs, some inside yeah. Sunbeam. I mean, just the yeah. sheer scale of the place is staggering. Uh, it was. Yeah. I, I want to just correct one 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 numeric thing, if I may, from your earlier interview. Uh, sun, in Sunbeam, out at Millfield, there were actually two thousand of us at Millfield. There were one thousand seven hundred in Sunbeam. And there were 300 in the Cork Spinning Company. And then the Sunbeam Group in Ireland employed 4,500 people in the mid-60s. But there were, there were never actually more than 2,000 actually out in Blackpool. I did not know that. So it was 4,500 spread all over the country. Correct. I mean, there was Allied Text. There was, there was a fashion company in Dublin. There was spinning mills in Tullamore. It was all over the place. There was, of course, Middleton Worsted Mills. Woolco was in Middleton. So, you know, it, it was spread out, spread out. This was the time, of course, of the Merchant Princes, which your, your, your forebearers would have been deemed as Merchant Princes on Leaside. Isn't that right? And, and set up Dwyer and Company initially, wasn't it? And the yeah, Lee Booth. You've probably just jumped back a hundred years there, probably, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> just to put it into context, because your grandfather, William, was part of that family, but deemed as being a black sheep of the family. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, you, you, I know you, you, also, you, you, you read the lovely interview which Linda Kenny did um, of me in, in the Holly Bar, which mm-hmm. really, you know, covered the story extremely well. Yeah. But, but he was, our, our side of the family, were the, 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 the James Dwyers and the Walter Dwyers, who so we were the slightly junior element of it. And when you got to the sort of the third generation down, there was a James Dwyer who wanted to contract, he didn't want to expand anymore. And my grandfather, who had been the same generation, was very go ahead and wanted to go. And as, as the story reads in, in the Holly Bank, he, he ordered the equipment anyway. Dwyer and Company wouldn't, wouldn't, um, wouldn't wouldn't take delivery. And what were they? Were they big um, spinning machines, knitting no, machines? No, 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 no. It would be more hosiery. Like, like I mean, you know, Breed was talking about half his, you know, socks and. I mean, it, the company started as Sunbeam Knitwear, so it, it was for producing, you know, pullovers and cardigans and things like that. I presume, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not too sure of the styles of the 1928. You know, so 1928, he went ahead anyway. So he must have broken away from the rest of the family. He was living in our Arbutus Lodge, the big beautiful home there at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. he was. And, and, and I mean, he, he, he sold it and bought a house in Rushbrook for Dad. 
and 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 granny and and and, and my three aunts. And they moved on to Rushbrook and, and, and Grandpa. I mean, it's, it, there was a lovely article written, actually, well, it was the entry of Bishop Lucy um, in 1957, and said that how, how Grandpa had, my grandfather, Billy Dwyer, had just, you know, plowed the money back in and back in and back in and, you know, created, created this amazing employment. He must have taken a huge gamble, though, at the time. Oh, I think he did. I mean, Jeannie Marcus, if you, if you take 1928, the, you know, the, 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 the virgin Irish state, a, a very, very poor country, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and whatever. But there's, there's another little, another little point, um, that also comes out from, you know, your super interview with Paddy Hyde. Um, but it, there is, you know, the reference is always to sort of Billy Dwyer, Grandpa, the great man, started Sunbeam, built the church, everything else. But he did die in 1951 and, my father, Declan, really expanded the company and, you know, by the mid-60s, dad yeah. employed 4,500 people. And my poor father, Declan, isn't actually given enough credit. <laughs> Sunday, oh, that's Billy Dwyer. You know, they forget poor Declan. Dwyer, it was Declan it? drove it on to even greater things and we should acknowledge that more often, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was... I was in the Arbutus house um, some years back after it was bought and beautifully renovated, gorgeously brought back up to life in the last 10 years or so. I don't know whether you had an opportunity to go back there and visit, but um, when I was in there, all of the original electricals that your granddad had put in, because those machines, he tested those machines in that house for a period of time. And it took, oh, yeah. yeah, it took a completely different type of electrical power. So he had to, he had to put in all sorts of special wiring. Apparently he was timing the machines before he installed them in Sunbeam, I'm told. I, 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 I've, I've no, I've no knowledge of that. I, I do, I do know <clears throat> that, that, that she did, that Sunbeam Nestware did start in our business lodge and that my granny, uh-huh. um, Dwyer was designing Nisware and stuff for it, but I, I haven't a lot of information of that. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible story, particularly with regards to the amount of people on Leaside that actually worked there, fell in love there, married there, you know, built yes. families and, uh, around it. I mean, it's incredible, I, I, my I, own I, mother included. Yeah, no, lovely, lovely. I mean, I, I worked there from 1962 to 1975, and in, in my home working career, I have to say they were the happiest years of my working life. And it came out with the breeder in your previous interview, you know, that, 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 that it was a happy place to, 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 to work. So when you and, went um, in there, did you go in as a, as a trainee or were you, were you treated I, with kid gloves because you were family or what? I, I, went, I went in as a management trainee and I, and, and I, I, I did start in, in the half house in the underwear department and and, 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 and various bits and pieces and, and and as a young lad aged sort of 17 you can imagine that if you went into the outerwear department where there were basically 300 women <laughs> y- young girls and the wolf hissing and the cat calling I was terrified out of my life it was a terrifying experience don't send me in there don't send me in there <laughs> it really was terrifying you know and the, and the, the other the other thing of course it, it, it wasn't appropriate for the managing director's son to go to the ark at the dancing on a Wednesday night <laughs> and, but, but I used I used to go down to handlebars pop ups at the railway station for a drink and yeah. in there I, I got to know the Dixies and one 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 night the Dixies were on next door in the Ark and um, I went with my friend Johnny Gasso and we went into the Ark and we went up to the room where they had the spotlights we were they were down on Joe Mack on the stage and everything else and Joe Mack knew I was in the Ark and he came forward on the stage and he said there's been a rumour going around that there's going to be short time in the Sunbeam because of the introduction of new plastic knickers <laughs> 
But, but he said, I, I have it directly from Declan and the family that this isn't so and there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> Plastic reusable knickers. For the next month, Neil, I was getting phone calls with orders for plastic knickers. <laughs> I think so Joe Mack might have hit on a good idea. <laughs> so so, so, so I, I didn't sneak in and out of the Arcadia unnoticed. <laughs> so, so that was in its heyday. I think, you went in, I think you went into the advertising and marketing within the company with a fairly substantial budget, I believe. In today's terms, oh, it would have oh, been... I, did, I, mean, I mean, in 1970, when I became advertising manager I had a budget then of 85,000 pounds a year which is about one and a half million euro um, in, in, in modern day modern day speak and That's I mean incredible. you know we, we, we would we would put on you know we'd do television commercials I, I think Sandin had the first full colour advertisement in the Irish Independent and one of the first advertisements on television and Sandin was always go ahead and I, I, I think one of the, the core things I learned in my life was the power of marketing. And, and, and you know, we could, we, could make, we could make a product um, market leader by sheer force of advertising. Yes, and it, yes. It, it, it was, but, I mean, we did things in style and we'd, we'd bring in photographers and models from, from the UK and go on location in Dublin. So you saw yes, tell me about Holly the Bar. Sunbeam fo- advert in the Hollybow with the Rhino. Yeah. Okay. We, we were doing a fashion shoot um, in Dublin, and we were doing this in Dublin Zoo, and we did a we did a complete sort of collection um, with various different animals, of penguins, and everything else. But we actually, if you if you look into the, the photograph, it's very small in 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 the Holly Bar, but there's actually a plank over the sort of the safety gap, and we we were actually in next to the three girls were next. The, the rhino, rhino crouching down something that today I mean health and safety would have, would have a heart attack but were the three models okay with that photograph because they're right up I mean, but in those days we just did stuff and you got on with it and you know I mean but we also went into the hippopotamus you know <laughs> you and, thought it would be yeah. a good idea to, ta- well, to take a photograph was, with, with the beautiful garments next to well, a rhino the, 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 adver- the advertising agency did the visuals of what they wanted us to capture. So then the photographer had to, you know, take the photographs, and then I was sort of di- directing the thing. But wh- whether or which way, let's say we had a laugh and we got away with it, but we, we didn't. We didn't even think of the danger. Because now you just superimpose the rhino into the photograph, wouldn't you? Oh, well, life's not. I mean, Photoshop and things have life have makes life very boring. <laughs> <laughs> and when then the without wanting to dwell on the negative, but when did things start to... Was it when we went into the European Union then and the floodgates opened for garments and underwear from other countries? When did it start to go south? Okay, from my own personal point of view, when I left school, I was given a job by my dad, you know, which was, um, which was you know, made me feel quite vulnerable that, you know, one day I reckon something would be, you know, taken over. And if a, if a company's taken over, the first thing you look at is, who are the family members who don't deserve to be here? Yeah. So, you know, so when I got to the age of 30, Fiona and I had two small kids. And at the age of 30, um, so I was born in 44, so when I was you know, 74, um, I realized, you know, in my own mind that I wouldn't be retiring from a job in the textile industry at the age of you know, 65. I needed to move on, but I also needed to get a job in my own right. And therefore, you know, I, I, I also knew we were just joining the common market and, um, you know, a lot of cheap textiles were going to come in, you know, from the Far East. And for, for myself, 
I felt, you know, I saw the writing on the wall and moved on and I moved into the banking world for 12 years, which was a bit boring, but it paid the school fees. And then I was able to, very interestingly, um, I know I'm not answering your question, give me two secs here, but from all of the photographic shoots and things that I was able to organize for some I had a huge background in photography and I was able to go forward and have a very successful 25-year career as a professional photographer. No way. But if, but everything I did in my later life was from what I learned in the University of Life at Sunbeam. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, yeah. but, but getting, getting back to your question, Neil, sorry, was that, you know, I think, you know, from the 1970s on, onwards, Sunbeam, it, it, if, you, if you think of sort of, you know, Carnaby Street and London and all, all, all the fashions and things that really got going in the 1970s, Sunbeam was making very stayed normal Phoenix pullovers, yeah. um, you know, but it wasn't fancy elsewhere. And the, the management thereafter didn't invest and diversify into more fashionable things. And whereas Sunday would, would never have um, been continued as a company with large employment, it, it could specialize more onto the fashion side. I mean, I'd mentioned at the very, very end of the Holly Bow interview that in 2020, Fiona and I went to up to the, the Showcase Ireland in the RDS in Dublin. Yeah. And the amount of knitwear and stuff that's been made in Ireland, a fantastic craft of yeah. textiles. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a marketplace, but not, not, for, not for a huge employer type. Situation. So over a period of time, um, orders got less and then staff started to be let go and it, it dwindled away. Naturally. Yeah, well, when I moved in 1975, I really, you know, lost, lost touch. So I don't really, yeah. I didn't really, you know, I was trying to bring up my own wife and have my own family yeah. with my wife yeah. and, 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 and get on with my own life. But, um, I, you know, I did sadly see the demise of it. You did. In fact, you were there on the day it burnt down and, and to believe were with your camera at the time. That must have been a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I was with my mum and some, uh, the message came through that somebody was in fire and I went up Spangle Hill. I won't call it Fire and Reed. It was all... <laughs> Spangle that Hill. That somebody was Spangle And I went up Spangle Hill. And there's a James Fitzgibbon Fitz, Fitzpatrick. He, he's very much part of the, um, the Blackpool Historical Society. He was there. And he took the photograph of me with the burning building behind me. And I was very cheerful. And it was terribly sad. And I gather there were an awful lot of you know, very cheerful women in, in, in Blackpool because... You know, everyone on the north side, we all worked in something. And, 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 and it was, you know, it was very much a final curtain. Oh, it was a very, very sad day because it was just the sheer scale of it. Some of the photographs you showed me, the interior, you sent me on photographs. So there obviously would have been a very lot of, uh, quite an amount of social activity within the building and within the business, wasn't there, for staff? Tell me about those. I, I, I think there was, you know, I mean, but, 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 um, you know, and, and as you said, there were various, various societies. There was the, I can't remember, the top of the towns, that's right. They, 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 that was a musical thing. That, 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 Tops of the great. towns would run in the opera house and it would be interfirm, wouldn't it? Year in, year out. Dunlops would be against Sunbeam and you'd have Correct. Verone and that, involved and, and Fords and, would be involved in it. And that was the sort of thing, and that, that was fantastic for keeping people together, you know, and, and, and for, for the fun side of things because, you know, but, um, I, I, I didn't get involved with that myself. But was there, did you send me a photograph of what looks like an auditorium or a concert hall? Well, that was, that, that is, the, the photographs I sent you were of the official opening of the new canteen, which, 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 which went with my dad there with Cornelius, Bishop Cornelius Lucy opening it, and that was, they had, they had a huge, a huge, um, 
um, party there there afterwards, a very formal opening. And funny, funny that it may seem, I actually, when I was at school, I, I learned to play the trumpet. And I actually played the trumpet on the stage there once with Dave Owens, who was a well-known court trumpet player. Uh, and, and, why did you pick the trumpet? Were you a noisy young fella? I was a, probably a very noisy young fellow, but then, then okay, I, I didn't um, play it for 50 years. And <laughs> 2012, I picked it up, and I'm very involved with the Cork Life Orchestra. Good. And we, 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 we play the trumpet uh, quite, quite frequently, um, but we're, we're finding it very difficult at the moment um, because we're not allowed to do gigs and practice and whatever. Well we, 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 we'll come back and do that. Well done, well done. Again, there's other aspects to the whole life of the Dwyers and, and Sunbeam, and of course, amongst it was the rebuilding. This was your granddad, and I think around about 1949, Billy Dwyer. Didn't he, um, he rebuilt the church there? Did he, he foot the bill for that, did he? He didn't, I mean, he, 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 um, there was a little small church in a Blackpool, and, and, and Grandpa built the church, and there was a an interesting aside here because um, in 1968, we're talking about 11 years after Cornelius Lucy opened the 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 canteen in Sunday, I wrote to him asking for dispensation to marry Fiona, who was a member of the Church of Scotland, and Cornelius Lucy wrote back to me and defined and said you perhaps if you would like to do anything for any member of the Dwarf family, he cannot he had, could not and he would not give me a dispensation <laughs> to marry her. Now later 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 this month he and I will be um fifty three. How did you how did you get around that? <laughs> No, but the, the, the apostolic nuncio, this is the trouble. It's, the normal Catholic in the street doesn't know that the apostolic nuncio in a country has the ability to overrule any unreasonable <laughs> ruling. <laughs> I didn't so, think anybody could overrule Connie, Connie Lucy. But oh, you so could, <laughs> no. But, but anyway, any, anyway, just as, a, as an aside, Fiona was asked to you know, have a word with the Catholic priest just to have a little bit of an understanding about you know, what she was getting involved in. Yeah. And she went... <laughs> She went. She went to a Catholic priest in Stroud, and he asked who she was marrying. And she said, and the, the Catholic priest, rather than bore her with the complexities of the Roman Catholic Church, told her all about this man called Billy Dwyer, and he built a church known as Billy Dwyer's Fire Escape, and it's his back door to heaven. <laughs> Billy Dwyer's fire escape as his get out of jail card. That's that's the one. But Grandpa did he did he did he did fund and he did um he did he did build the church. And in actual fact the bell has um the name Maeve in it. And Maeve was my aunt who died of Polio in 1943. He put his daughter's name on the bell in the church of Blackpool. Never knew yeah. that. I never knew that. And what would you like to do with the plaque of William Dwyer now that it has been located? Yeah, okay, okay. I, I think the only... I, I, I would hope that... Um, I would hope that the, the, the museum in the museum in Fitzgerald's Park, I feel, would be the most appropriate place. Um, I, I, I don't think you could put it up anywhere in Blackpool because unfortunately, you know, something like that. It's a, it's a fabulous piece. And one other, one, other, one other aspect, please, Neil, of the plaque, of course, it's not just the plaque of Grandpa. 
it's a plaque by James Murphy. That's right, and, the Blackpool you know, sculpture. And, and, yeah. Which is Blackpool sculpture. And I mean, my, my, my grandfather and father commissioned a, a enormous amount of work with James over the year. But I mean, it is a beautiful um, reproduction of my grandfather. It's terribly accurate, but it is beautiful work of Seamus Murphy as well. <laughs> so it, it is both, both you know, a, 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 a tribute to my grandfather, but it is also a, a, a very fine example of Seamus Murphy's Excellent it work. is a Seamus Murphy piece in itself it's of importance. So that's why correct. you feel caught music. Well, let, let's see if... I'm, but you must have been very relieved or delighted to hear that it had been found. Yes. I, I, had a, I had a call from a, a Chris Smith some years ago who was involved at some level in some... I mean, he sort of knew... He, he, he had it sort of in his care whether he was something to do with the management of the place. But then I sort of lost touch and I was really pleased to hear I, I loved your interview with Paddy Hyde I have to say you know it was absolutely lovely guy yeah I yeah. love 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 the inter- an interesting life to say the least but I mean uh, you know Paddy has it and I mean I don't know of anyone in Cork City Council or stroke um, you know the, the museum in, in, in Fitzgerald's Park but I think I, I, like there, there had been a gorgeous model of Sunbeam um, of the factory given to my grandfather in the 1940s and um, this re-emerged last year it had been, there was a Paddy O'Connor who had been on the half his the sock side of Sunbeam for many many years and when Sunbeam finally closed down in the 1990s the 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 um, whoever the liquidator was called Paddy in and said you're the last man standing and wow. he said look this model has been in, in the boardroom here and look he gave it to Paddy and it was it was um, up in his garage in Mayfield for the last 30 years and about a year ago with his wife Eileen they got the little plaque and it said presented to William Dwyer um, as a token of friendship from the employees it wow. was gorgeous, a gorgeous where, where is that model? That model is that, so but Paddy, Paddy, Paddy and, 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 and Eileen said, look, this belongs to our family. So he knew me. We'd worked together years before. So he gave it to me. And then I gave it, I presented it on behalf of the family to the Cork City and County Archives in Great William O'Brien Street okay. in Blackpool. Okay. But, yeah. And they, and they, and they were do, do, getting a special table made to have it in the hall because that, that's there. But so therefore, they, they have something already in Blackpool. So I, 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 that's where I feel that if the plaque could end up in, in Fitzgerald's Park in the museum there, I think that would be the most appropriate. I think so too. And we have a contact with the curator uh, at the museum. So perhaps that might be something I could, I could chase down. Apparently also a bust of William Dwyer has also um, been brought to my attention. Are you aware of a bust? I, I, I was I was aware of that shape, which and that would be that would be another artwork of James Murphy, would, because um, I, I, I I vaguely remember one. I know my, my 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 cousin Robin, who would have been Maeve. I mentioned my aunt Maeve, who died of failure. Um, there was a bus when Maeve died. Um, Robin um, was was three and a half, and my 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 mum Dodo actually wanted Robin to come and live in our family. But yeah. Grand, Grandpop said that he owed it to Maeve to look after Robin. So Robin lived with him and he had a, Grandpop had a lovely bust done by James Murphy. But unfortunately, um, Grandpop died when Robin was 10. So from the age of 10, he moved into my home. So he is, to all intents and purposes, a brother of mine. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to chase down that bust and see where it is because I just got contacted to say somebody has it. So maybe that could be another story that, that we would, could develop as well at the same time. That, that, that would be again, you know, your, your, your curator um, in, 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 in Cork Museum. That, yeah. or, 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 or that might even be Crawford Gallery, I don't know, you know. 
but at least they've been located, which is great. Yeah. And yeah, it also gave me an opportunity to, to catch up with you and get your backstory. Um, would, you, would, you, would you, I mean, part of the article in the, in the Hollywood gives the impression of a very privileged life. I'm sure it was very hardworking, but like the memberships of Cork Golf Club, the Munster, Royal Munster Yacht Club, your dad had a chauffeur, you, you went to, to Christians. Would, would that have been a privileged life, do you think? Oh, very much so. And, and I mean, you know, one, one didn't, one, one didn't, one didn't realize it at, yeah. at, at, at the time. But I mean, I, I, I still stand back, Neil. That you know, when, 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 when I got to a stage where okay, I left Columbia, I went into the banking world. Redundancy hit me at the age of forty-two. I ended up unemployed, going wow. to George's Key, getting wow. one hundred and thirty-eight pounds a week. And from that stage, when I signed on, I realized I was on the bottom of rung of the ladder and there was only one way up. up. And I picked up a camera and I became a very successful professional photographer. Amazing. But I've done, I've done that through my own eyes and as myself as a creative. And even though, yes, I had a very privileged background, I still was able to do something as myself. Fantastic. What a great story. Are you retired now or do you still actively? Oh, well, well, retired at the age of 77. I've been, Fiona and I have been blessed with three children and six grandchildren. Oh, right. So taking it easy now and enjoying life. What a great story. I have a feeling we'll chat again and uh, I'll get in touch with Dan Breen at the Cork City Museum uh, because you are right in themselves. These are very important pieces of Seamus Murphy, but also very historically important to the city considering the Dwyer connection with with Sunbeam Woolsey. And let us not forget your dad, Declan. You are right in that regard, who drove it on to even greater things than William. and one one other thing, please, if I may, just go back to your early interview this morning with, with Breda and her invisible mending. One of the things, having spent 13 years in Sunbeam, between my wife, my son, and my two daughters, if they have any garments that are damaged, they give them to me, and I mend them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'd be well able. We'll chat, we'll chat again, Kevin, I'm quite sure we will. Thanks, Neil. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, the one and only Bye-bye. Kevin Dwyer. Lines open on one. Sorry, lines open on oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six. Hope you found that interesting and nostalgic. Another great Cork story. You can text oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. And undoubtedly, this is a story that we'll be updating on in the days and weeks ahead. Neil's got a new number. Call him now on oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six. Yes, indeed. Uh, on Friday, I was chatting with Kathleen Hurley Mullins, who is part of Operation Transformation. Got some interesting texts on that. Lovely woman with a really interesting story to tell about her life and the passing of her sister and the reasons why she is involved in Operation Transformation. But she came back to me saying, regarding the message that was sent in, it was one of the texts, um, the one, regarding the message that was sent in after I went on air about people being weighed in front of everyone um, and the fact that they're wearing lycra, that's incorrect. Uh, the way it is now is that it takes place in the morning and when you come out, all five leaders are dressed the same, which is great. So you don't have to find a new outfit Every week, every week to wear. I hope you get an opportunity to mention this. Absolutely, Kathleen, happy to do so. And also, um, you know, we were talking about people who have food delivered by the different uh, food delivery apps. So you could be delivered food by car. It could be by electric bike. It could be by push bike. They might be on a moped. moped. Um, but not the, the food doesn't always arrive, right? Um, when you read this out, you think I'm absolutely spoofing, but this is 100% fact regarding a delivery driver that works in the Cork area on nights. When he's working, he takes his child in the car while he's doing deliveries. If the child gets hungry, he actually puts his hand into people's food, like, for instance, chips, 
and gives the child a handful of chips. Um, you're telling me you're not spoofing that it 100% happens. How do you know it happens? Have you seen it happens happen? I mean, if he's in the car, how are you able to witness something like that? Were you told it? Uh, Pappy to read it out nonetheless. There was a delivery guy delivered our pizza recently with his two kids in the back of the car. I didn't mind, though. I thought it was interesting to see a man who could multitask. <laughs> that is rare. <laughs> multitasking man is an absolute biological impossibility is it Uh, we ordered pizza from a Douglas location a few months ago the wrong pizza arrived but we ate it because we were starving about 20 minutes later ding dong the doorbell went it was another driver from the same location with the correct pizza we told him we'd already got the wrong delivery he wanted us to take the second delivery we said no because we had already eaten he regrettably took the pizza away I rang the pizza shop and they agreed to give a credit on our next order <laughs> you ate the pizza and you got free pizza on the basis that you <laughs> didn't get the correct pizza uh, in our house they'd have probably taken the other pizza and eaten that as well but thanks for that all the same and um, when I came off here on Friday I caught up with one of the uh, delivery drivers who delivers on his electric bike uh, food all over the city have a listen to this Sean good morning Good morning, Neil. How are you? Good, thank you. A lot of calls over the last day or two with people, all sorts of scary stories about food not being delivered. Mm, Um, Hungry people out there. Yeah, you you drive, don't you? I mean, you're... I do, I cycle on an e-bike. Wow, they're amazing. I mean, do you get a good charge off them? I do. I get about 45 kilometres out of my battery. And I have a smaller one. I used to get 80 kilometres out of the battery as well. Okay, so does that do you for... I mean, do you do night shifts or day shifts or what? Yeah, mostly evening shifts. I mean, it's busy around the weekends, usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Lunchtime is good and mornings are good. Sometimes. All right, a little bit easier with the battery power and what have you. But what's the story then with regards to people talking about food just not being delivered, being, being it says on the app that it has, um, and also people saying that in some occasions the drivers are eating the food. Yeah, it's it's gotten worse over over the last year or two, you know, with more deliveries. And it, it's frustrating for the restaurants and, and the other workers, the good workers that are honest. Okay, so be open and honest with you. Like, is there a yeah. problem there? There is. There's a, a group of guys, and the, people are saying, like, it's a group of guys from Romania, and they seem to be making off with the food. And it's, you know, the other, everyone else is getting a bad name, then the other writers, like, the other guys from Romania, Brazil, Ireland, everywhere else. And when you say making off with the food what do you mean well the notification comes to your phone to go to this restaurant and they they take the food but they don't click that they've accepted the food on their phone they actually click reject and they disappear off the system then what yeah what happens then what happens next then where's like where where's the food going uh, who knows I mean it it could be any size meal like I, I don't know how they're um, what they're doing with a hundred euros worth of food? Uh, who who are they feeding with that? You know, I don't know. But um, I I did hear of a, a guy being caught one time in the local chipper. Um, a different rider I know came along and he saw the guy eating the food uh, around the corner. <sighs> Himself and his missus were talking it, into it. Does it? I mean, just let's just talk about that for a second. Does it pay so bad that they're starving themselves? No, I think it's more of a scam. Like um, uh. Yeah, I think it's just a, a certain small group of people. They're just runners as a scam, I think, because there's there's no record of who rejected the order. So if you ring up, if the restaurant rings Deliveroo to get the information of the person who um, turned up, took the food, but then rejected the order, there's no 
information that Deliveroo has kept on that person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just free food for them, really, you know. But surely be to God, somebody who's working as a driver delivering food um, could be terminated if they were doing things wrong. They are, but I've heard that they they can just kind of turn up a new kind of fake ID from, uh, you know, whatever country, like, and just open up a new account. And then they're off and running. And yeah. would, would restaurants be able to recognize somebody from the past who are not delivering food? And sure. refu- would they refuse to give it to them? If they could recognize them, but, you know, it's, it's very hard now. Like, everyone's wearing a little mask and they, you know, have a, a hat on and sure you, you couldn't recognize them on camera. But other people then are talking about the fact that, um, you know, sometimes they, they're following the app and the driver is attempting to deliver and is not getting the right address and yeah. just eventually giving up. Does that yeah. happen as well? Uh, it does, yeah. There are genuine cases, like especially, you know, after midnight now around the weekend, like, and wires get crossed and, you know, the, the address could be wrong and the phone number and they, you just can't find the customer sometimes. Yeah, know, but why, why then wouldn't the driver whether it's a bike or a car or whatever, just ring the customer? He might have run out of credit. could be something as simple as that. Um, sometimes you, you ring and there is no answer. Um, it's like uh, there could be a problem with the customer's phone, your phone. You know, uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work out sometimes. What, what, I mean, have you ever been in a situation like the, where that happened? Yeah, yeah. What, what have you had to do with the food? Um, well, you, you're advised if you can contact the customer. You've tried a few times. Um, you, they say dispose of it in a res- responsible manner. That's what the delivery company said. Have you done that? Oh, I have, yeah. And what's a responsible manner? Where do you put 30 or 40 or 50 euro worth of perfectly good food? Well, it would never, it usually wouldn't be that much. But, uh, well, I mean, it, yeah. but, it, but it can. I mean, I know of orders yeah. where it can be. You could have three or four people getting a, a main course or what have you. Sure. What's more responsible than not leaving a go to waste? Like if, um, you know, you can't contact them and... I had a case last week where I was given the wrong address and I turned up, uh, I was at the top of Patrick's Hill and then it turns out there was a completely different address altogether and it was one pizza um, and Deliveroo did, didn't mention the the new address but they said, oh, uh, you just dispose of the, the order there, you know. How did you do that? Where did it go? Well, I sat down in Belfield and, you know, just... <laughs> Sean. I think it was New Year's Eve, so I just saw the fireworks there. They were going off at 10 o'clock. Sean, you ate somebody else's pizza. Uh, but, you know, I didn't know where the person lived. I tried. I tried. I was went to the address I was given. What more can you do, you know? <laughs> well, at least you tried your hardest. You tried your best. I did. And if someone wanted a slice, I, I'd offer it to them, you know. Okay. You see, I'm just, I'm just wondering if the money is so tight with people and, the, you know, I, I'm not quite sure how much one would make. Are you full-time at it? Um, well, I was full-time. Like, it was a, a great way to save a bit of extra cash. Was it on top of another job? It was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was great yeah. for that. Yeah. But, I mean, there's no reason for people to be stealing food the way they are, like... I mean, I, I've delivered about like, probably 10,000 deliveries at this stage, and I, I probably couldn't deliver five. Maybe I had to leave outside someone's door. And maybe maybe 50, I don't know, maybe 20 or so were, couldn't be delivered because of you couldn't contact the customer. And how, how, are, how are customers generally then, when, with regards to you delivering food, say if it's late or the orders are wrong, you don't hear of any of that, do you? I suppose you don't, because you kind of... 
it's like Deliveroo are kind of in the middle. They they take the complaints really. Yeah. Do people tip? They they do. Yeah, thank you know thankful for any, anyone that tips. But okay. you know yourself, times are harder for people. Like there's less spare cash going around. Yeah, but I think people should do their best to give something anyway. You know, it definitely makes a difference yeah. when you get one or two euro into your hand. You okay. Know? So do you think we have a problem then, or is it just a small group or? giving a bad uh, rep for everybody else? It's a problem because there seems to be a weakness in the system that um, it might be a condition that we're not employees, we're only contractors. So a delivery aren't allowed to record our um, performance, maybe. Mm. Mm. So maybe um, these bunch of guys are abusing that then by kind of stealing the food and there's no record of their identity, you know? Do you work in all weather then? I mean, you're on a bike. I mean, you must yeah. get soaked. I, I have worked in all weather during the years, right, but I feel other things going on now, so I kind of I don't do as many hours now during the week. All right, my man. Well, stay safe. Look after yourself. Thanks for I taking will. the call. Yeah, thanks, man. Cheers, Sean. Take care. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. Uh, that conference that I was referencing, the press conference that uh, Djokovic's family, I'm told, are giving, uh, was due at 11. Apparently, it's at 1 o'clock now. So, if there's anything happening over there, it's a huge story, actually. People have no interest in tennis themselves or even interested in it. Uh, of course, at the end of the day, it's all to do with COVID and uh, everything to do with, uh, you know, those that are and are not vaccinated. Anyway, text 086 8104 Pick up the phone on 0818. 104106. We have uh, two vouchers every day to give away this week, courtesy of ourselves and Satori Clinic. It's a new clinic that has a lot of different therapies and skills, amongst them acupuncture and cupping, and uh, you can recover uh, from all sorts of physical ailments, injury, pain, uh, issues involving stress or depression, fertility issues could be helped, and your general well-being. And they've got a new business at Langford Row in Cork City. They're called Satori Clinic. So we have 150 euro vouchers, two of them to give away every morning. So it's new you and a new year. And on that basis, all these songs, artists and titles, feature the word new. So in about an hour's time, I'll be opening the phone lines. You need to give me the artists and titles. Have a listen. you got a friend in me. Don't call just yet. I'll open the phone lines in an hour. I'll play those three songs again. You can pick up the phone. All right. New year, new you. Speaking about a new year, of course, it is a new year for all of us, including sixth year students. Yet another. This will be the third batch of leaving certificate students who've been affected by COVID-19 and the various variants that we've had to deal with. And what they've had to deal with, of course, has been very, very difficult with regards to, firstly, the exams themselves, study, being all over the place, sometimes in school, sometimes not, sometimes Zooming, sometimes in class. Uh, And it's been very difficult for them. And this year is the very same. And this morning, like, for instance, the front of the Independent is a headline like, Principals Want Hybrid leaving certificate because COVID is disrupting the school works of leaving certificates. Now, a hybrid would be either the choice of doing the exam or if not doing the exam, getting an accredited grade on the work that you've done in school or a combination of both. Anyway, Razia is a sixth year student. I think she goes to St. Angela's. And I just wanted to get the perspective from somebody who actually will be sitting leaving cert a little later this year. Razia, good morning. Good morning. So what's going on in the minds of you guys in sixth year? How are you all feeling? Honestly, stressed out of our minds is the best way of saying it. 
I know. And the same last I, year for those that said it and the year before. Yeah. It's three years going strong and we still haven't seen a change from our government putting anything in place for us. It's kind of getting ridiculous at this point, I feel. And just remind us, what did Leaving Cert students do last year for the Leaving Cert and indeed the year before? So the first year, they all got accredited grades. It was put out for them that they all had to get them. Last year, they got hybrid grades, which was their choice. They got either accredited or to sit their exams or a mix of both. Yeah, yeah. And have we any numbers as to who decided to do what last year? I don't actually know, but I know from personally from a lot of uh, people that I've spoken to, a lot of my friends decided to do both for subjects where they felt more confident and wanted to spend time on the harder subjects so that they didn't feel as left behind in other subjects. Okay, so they did that hybrid that they're talking about last year. Would that work this year? I think so. I feel like especially when it comes to accredited grades, a big fear a lot of students have is the inflammation of points. But I feel that now that this is the third year running, I know a lot of teachers have started to do a lot more in-class tests, especially for me. I'm getting a test a week at least in every subject. So there's a lot better of a understanding of where the students are, which I think could get a lot better of an idea for accredited grades and not have as much of an inflammation as we've seen in the last two years. And is it the teacher then would make the call on the accredited grade? Yeah, it yeah. would be the teachers and the grades that we've presented so far gotcha. in class tests, yeah. Christmas exams, and so forth. Yeah, like I understand sixth year is a challenging year, but fifth year must have been very difficult for the likes of your good self because you lost a huge chunk of it. I agree. I think fifth year is where you get the most coursework done. Even at the end of fourth year, a lot of higher level math students lost a lot of valuable time which has really affected them this year and still trying to catch up with the workload. And then in fifth year, it's where you're trying to get the most work done. And teachers were really trying to get that work done while we were online. And personally, it was hard. You know, trying to listen and understand while being on a computer all day is not the best way to learn. I know. I know. It's hard to work out as to what they're going to do. Probably the same as last year, I would think. Either a choice of sitting it, accredited the grades, or or a combination of both where somebody would sit the exam in what? The subjects they were very strong at or the ones that they are weak at? Which would they go for? I feel like I personally would choose the ones I'm weaker at because I feel like I'd give myself more of a chance to get a better grade. Because I know that certain subjects I'm solid at and I know my grades have represented that so I don't feel the need to fit them yeah. because I know that my accredited will represent what I can do. But how are you all coping, are you personally, with regards to, because I know you were telling the lads that there's a certain amount of anxiety takes over. Are you, are you worried about being in class? Are you worried about COVID, things like that? Oh, absolutely. Like, even with, like, the weather at the moment and windows and doors being open, like I've been saying, I'm like, I'm either going to get COVID or pneumonia, whichever one gets me first God. at this point. Oh, but are you like, allowed to wear sweaters and coats or is it a very specific? We have to wear our school uniform. We're allowed to wear, like, we have a fleece, for example, for our PE. We can wear that and our school jacket. But I can't wear the school pants. They just don't fit me. So I'm stuck with the tights and the skirt, which isn't sustainable. And, like, in one of my classes, I'm our class where the, like, building is is outside so the windows and doors are directly leading to the outdoors i might be in the corner but i'm freezing and i have like a hot water bottle and everything and that hot water bottle is already cold by the time i get to my third class so students bring hot water bottles into class oh yeah we're like hiding them in our like jackets like you zip open your jacket and like roll it up so you can get your hot water bottle in 
But if you're allowed to wear, bring a hot water bottle, surely you should be allowed to wear whatever you want that you could That's layer what up. I think. I think because like there's only so much you can put on under your school uniform. Yeah. Like, I'm here wearing turtlenecks and everything. Like it's ridiculous. So your hands constantly frozen and your feet as well. Oh, I have girls in my years who come in wearing gloves. Like we're wearing gloves and scarves and beanies. Like you think we were going out skiing? Like I'm going to wear an Eskimo suit by next week. <laughs> This is a mild week temperature-wise, so it shouldn't be yeah. too bad. But if it flips again down into the oh, low God, numbers... Yeah, like, yeah. In Dublin, schools have closed because of the snow. Like, students physically couldn't come in. And there's a regulation for workplaces that they have to be 16 degrees. But there's nothing in place for schools that, like, we don't get cold. What about the proposal, and amongst them is Mick Barry, the Cork TD, saying that they should just give a college place... Because a lot of the time, that's what this is about, isn't it? Leaving a certificate is about points and going to college. That they just automatically should just give everyone a college place. I agree. I think, especially like Nordic countries, how they have their system where everyone can get a first year place. But if you fail your exams, you can't proceed on to second year. Personally, I want to study film. I don't think any of my subjects are helping me towards that, except maybe English. Yeah. But like my maths and Irish and my French, they're not going to reflect. Even if I got good grades in that, that doesn't mean I'm exactly going to do well in film. For your course choice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like even though the Leaving Star has been here since 1925, I think it's a very outdated system that doesn't appeal to all students that they can really show their best. And especially... It doesn't help for all careers. Isn't that amazing? Because you're saying something in 2021 that we said back in the 70s and early 80s that a lot of what we were learning in school, we never used again. Exactly. And nothing's changed. Well, maybe that's unfair. I don't know. Maybe it has changed (laughs) somewhat. But a lot of it is still the same. You know, I mean, unless you go into engineering or things like that, what use will be a lot of the maths that you're learning? Exactly. Like, I feel like, as much as I enjoy subjects like history and like music and stuff, I don't see how this is teaching me any either A, life skills or B, ways to proceed in my careers that I want to do. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I could talk to you for a couple of hours on the importance <laughs> of history. And I know we're living in a time of a lot of it being cancelled, but history is very important. That's if, true. I mean, if it's I, a good way to learn about the past. Oh, absolutely. And your future then finally you're saying is in film, is it? Media or yeah, what, whatever? Yeah, I want to do film, media and politics. Right. So what? typify a job then that would come out of that. What would that be? Well, it's, a joint honours so I like my mainly my heart is in film and acting but it's always good to have a backup just in case so that's where the politics comes in (laughs) (laughs) so a broad net then yeah exactly because I feel like it's kind of needed in this. what kind of points are you going to need for that currently it's 4.30 and it went up 50 points this year alone oh no like I'm lucky enough that my points have stayed relatively low to achieve but I know friends who want to go into STEM subjects where they're not even studying for their pre's anymore to try and get the best possible scores for their HPAT. Listen, I wish I had more time, but I'm going to be keeping a close eye on your career in film and media in the future and wish you well. Thanks for taking Thank the you. call, Rosia. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. You Bye. got it. Take care. Back after 11, you can text 0868 106. I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. New year, new number for Neil. 0818 104 106. 
And also, talking about a new year um, and a new you, I want you to take the uh, happiness challenge a little later on this morning. I'll be chatting with the uh, psychotherapist and best-selling author Richard Hogan, uh, Leeside lad, working out of Dublin now. We've spoken to him in the past. He has a happiness challenge. You can do it online. It's 10 specific questions that you need to answer first. Then you score yourself. And then over a 10-week period, the idea is to get that score up and make you happier rewire the brain if you like so if you're interested in taking that uh, happiness challenge we'll do that around about half past 11 this morning how can you be happy how can you change yourself eh? and have a new you for the new year when somebody has put two boxes of chocolates outside on the counter outside a box of heroes and a box of celebrations and they're full up just when you're looking at the last ones last year being whittled away you're thinking that's it now the temptation is gone And two more boxes appear on a Monday morning. I'm not suggesting for a moment that they should take them away or ban them, but it makes life very tough. And here I am with my hard-boiled eggs. Anyway, lines are open. One eight, sorry, oh eight one eight one zero four one zero six. You can text oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. How are the New Year resolutions guys going? It's the tenth of January. Uh, they say, and I think Richard Hogan will also say that by the middle of January, the vast majority of us and our New Year's resolutions will have fallen by the wayside. So, how's that going for you? Text oh eight six eight one zero four one zero six. Quite an amount of text in Friday's program, and I just want to do a few of them. Uh, one or two of them are are indeed COVID-related. Here's an interesting one. I'm just texting about my COVID-19 test uh, that I have today. I'm in isolation now for six days after testing positive five times. And I've been trying to get a PCR test since last Sunday week. Being online, ringing South Dock, ringing my own doctor in Bishopstown. I finally received a test, but it's in y'all. I don't feel well enough to drive there. I can't bring family to bring me as I'm very sick. And two hours in the car with someone won't be good for them nor me. My only option now is to get up and get a bus from my house in Toker to town, wait around the bus station while not trying to spread the disease, get a bus to y'all, then walk from the bus to the test centre, stand around waiting for the bus home. All this while the people in my family are being sent, sent to the South Douglas Road. It's bizarre, isn't it? I've rang and asked to change it and I've been told there's nothing they can do. Uh, and do I want the appointment or not? This is absolutely ridiculous, carry on. Is there anything that anyone can do to get this fixed or changed? If not, I will be travelling down to y'all with no mask, gloves or sanitizer. Uh, this country is an absolute joke. Well, I suppose even if you are travelling down to y'all, you should be travelling with mask and at least the sanitizer. I don't know about the gloves. But it makes no sense, actually, that somebody who has tested positive six times on antigens would be sent on a bus, a public bus to y'all to get a PCR test. I know what you're saying in that regard. Anyway, you can email neil at uh, redfm.ie. With regards to, um, you know, I was chatting there with the Leaving Certificate student just before 11 o'clock. Eileen Halley wants to pick up on that. She's with jumpstartyourconfidence.com and joins me on line one. Eileen, good morning. Hi, good morning, Neil. I was making you? the point to Razia, actually, that it's three years of Leaving Cert students, and even the ones sitting Leaving Cert now had a terrible fifth year. Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer, really. I mean, I don't even know why this has become a discussion. It should just be happening. Well, I mean, what should kids... be happening is Mick Barry Wright, who he says there should be a, le- a, a college place for every sixth year. Well, I, 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 as much as I agree that that is probably a great idea going forward, because I do agree with that, because I think if kids get into a course that they're passionate about, you know, they can excel in that, whereas they're judged on an academic system that we all know is archaic and isn't really judging our kids fairly. But I think we've only got a few months here. 
So if giving them the opportunity, I think, to either sit or get predictive or a combination of both is a very fair method and it covers all the students because some students obviously really do want to sit there put in the work. Some are stressed out and have been struggling for the last two years, really. I mean, a lot of these students, their fifth year is completely uprooted. Fifth year is the basis of the leaving. It course. is, let's see, it you is. Know, yeah, yeah. I'm working with a lot of sixth year students whose a lot of their courses aren't finished, they're stressed out of their head. And like, Neil, they're going to be stressed at the best of times. But these kids, their worlds have been turned upside down. But therefore, I mean, it probably will be a hybrid or a blended solution, won't it? But they need to make the decision now. Yeah. They yeah. need to allow these kids to understand what they're facing in three or four months. Let them prepare for that. Like a lot of the kids I speak to, they will probably want to do both. But at least it gives them the option and it just takes that little bit of stress out of their lives. Because, they, you know, they're dealing with so many other issues at the moment, whether it's isolation, loneliness, friendship issues. Like our young people are seriously struggling. We just don't need to add anything else onto that. Let's support them, give them the best chance they can and help them to move forward in a more positive way. Years but and I years and years ago, college was a privilege. It's no longer a privilege now. It's more likely to be a right, isn't it? It is, but like I suppose the way, like what you were saying there about give people a place, which I think they do in France actually, but I know a lot of kids who go through the school system and they massively struggle because they know they're learning an amount of rubbish that has nothing to do with their future lives. But you put those same kids into a course that they're passionate about and they're interested in, and by God, they are capable of so much and they can excel and, you know, do the very, very best they can. So I do think we're, we all, I think we all know this, we've gone over this 10 hundred times. They are being judged unfairly because our system is so archaic, it hasn't changed since you and I were in school. It must you know, have, yeah, I think, it, I think they did tinker around the edges, but the actual formula is still the same, isn't it? Well, they're they're oh. learning an awful lot of stuff that they just won't use in life no, or I mean, in careers. We have to accept the fact they're, they're, they're online kids. I mean, they get so much information at the touch of a button. Like we used to, have to go to libraries, yeah. look up notes, write down notes. You know, it's a different world. But our system has not changed for that. And, you know, the world of creativity is massive now, whether it's in the arts, whether it's in marketing, advertising, whatever. Like, why aren't we training our kids with all of this? Um, Brazil was making the point that it might make sense to give everybody a first-year college place to prove themselves. If they don't cut it in first year, she might be suggesting they're they're just told to go. Oh, well, I 100% agree with that. I mean, um, if they get the lucky enough to get the opportunity for the place, then they have to prove it. And if it's in a subject that they're interested in, they really want to do, then I guarantee you 99% of them will prove it. But we have so many kids going into courses for the sake of it. You know, a lot of them not knowing what they're doing or why they're doing it. It's just let's take the next step automatically because they all want to go to college. And, they and what, what stage in what stage then they realise that they're in the wrong course or they don't actually like it? Oh, God, a lot of the time, Neil, I'd say six months in. Yeah. yeah, you know, seemed, there, yeah. I, I've worked so they've taken it. They've taken a place from somebody who desperately wanted it, but fell short of the points then. Well, they've taken a place because they have no idea what they want to do. So how do you fix that? Should be, how, how do you fix that? That's your, that's your well, area I, of expertise. Should yeah, be, but I think a lot of the kids I would recommend to kids that I work with, pick a broad topic of something that you have to have an interest in. There is no point in a creative kid going in to do, say, a mathy science course, for example, or vice versa. At least pick a broad topic of something that you're genuinely interested in. Allow yourself to mature. You know, and over time, I'm a firm believer that the right door is open if you begin the path in something that you know you're interested in. But do they actually know at that age, Eileen? They know what they're interested in. 
you know, do they know what they're going to do with the rest of their lives? My God, I didn't know for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the kids, I mean, out of, say, my daughter's group, there were six of them. Five of those kids never used what they did in college. They all went into different areas. So I think that first degree for, it's a very minority group, Neil, going to college knowing what they really, really want to do. And even oh, those that even those that do say they want to go into medicine or law, for instance, they may find that they had a kind of completely different impression of it. And when Absolutely. they got stuck, it, it just wasn't for them. They hated it. Well, I, and a lot of the time, I think in our system, unfortunately, kids who tend to be more academic and they can be creative and everything else as well. But when they are the kids who are presumed to get the high, high 500, 600 points, it, there's, a, there's a kind of a thing that, oh, well, you must do. Yeah. med, law, blah, blah, blah. Like I had a kid with me one time, she was 17. She was going to sixth year and her mum told me she wanted to do med. I always kind of got a bit of a red flag, but anyway. So I was chatting to her and I said, well, look, what form of medicine do you want? Like, what are you excited about? Is it GP? Is it surgery? What excites you? And she looks at me straight in the eye and she said, well, to be honest, I love arts and I love lang- I love art and I love languages. Sounds to me as if there might have been pressure in the home. Neil. 80%. Is it the, the parents pushing the them? And the pressure in the school for these academic kids to go down a certain road. Oh, okay, so a school ridiculous. might say, or a parent might say, if you, are achi- if you can achieve 600, you need to go yeah. for medicine. By, yeah, 100%. And it happens far too wrong because what the follow-on from that is we end up with people in the wrong jobs who aren't going to excel at those jobs. Like I said straight up to that girl that day, so well, to be honest, love, you don't want to be a doctor. I don't particularly want to see you walking towards me when I'm on a trolley. You know, people who, and, and that's when you look so, at the nursing scenario. I mean, that's a vocation in my book. Look what they've done with the points for nursing. We are going to lose some of the most fabulous kids who could be the most amazing nurses because our point system is so ridiculous. But that also means, I don't mean to be alarmist here, but it also means that you have doctors and nurses who don't want to be doctors and nurses who are doctors and nurses. 100%, but you have everything of people who, teachers, Nurses, doctors, retailers, staff and restaurants, everything. It's a broken system. It's a broken it's a model. Massively, and that's where I do think that first year, I suppose I just felt when you said that, God, could we actually organise that in five or six months? It would be bewildering to me in this country if we could achieve that change. Because you're also probably dealing as well with anxiety, with stress levels among students. Their interpersonal skills are probably shot to bits. Horrendous. But that's another area that we need to look at in the curriculum. Our kids are finding it difficult to communicate. But if we get their heads out of phones and out of screens, lift their heads up. But Neil, to be fair to them, if I go into a school and we have a very honest, open conversation about the negatives of phones, now we'll also obviously have a conversation about the positives or else you're going to lose. No, I know there are positives, but now I'm told that the younger generation do not wish now to receive phone calls. They only want text messages. That's going a long time. That's very but, worrying, though. Okay, but let, let me say this. Of any school I've ever worked in, every child in there will say they are never told about the real, basic, day-to-day negative impact the phones have on their mental health. And that is isolation, loneliness, you know, um, regret over study, over... The study's a huge one. Um, lack of sleep, what that entails, what it, what it brings. Lack of connection with grandparents and other family members. And they get it, but to be fair to them, they're not told. It's not explained. In their world, this phone is their third hand, and they know no better. Ah, but surely and the vast majority of parents them. are wrecking the heads of teenagers to get off the phones and put down the How many of us are going to actually listen to our parents at 14 and 15 and 16? It's like, 
Oh, oh yeah. Okay. But you set rules. Right, you set ground listen. rules, don't you? You ground them. You take the phone. You yeah. Turn off the but Wi-Fi. I don't know what you do. Well, you can set all the boundaries and all the rules, but unfortunately, they're probably ten steps ahead of all of us. But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in favour of the kids who I genuinely think are a phenomenal generation of kids and their capabilities are insurmountable. But I think to be fair to them, they need, you know, even if they brought in students of 21, 22 who've gone through this, who can explain to them in a realistic way their regret or what they noticed they did or what they could have done differently. Students will listen to them. Do they listen to us as parents? Of course they do to a degree, but we are like a bit of a broken record, to be fair, at that age. Yeah, you know, I suppose. I mean, I look back and I remember, yeah. and it's like, oh, blah, 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 there she goes again. Yeah. But they do listen, so I'm not, please don't take me up wrong, parents and mums out there. They do listen, but I think to be fair to them, they're in a world that is so damaging and so addictive. We have to support them more, and we have to give them the tools, and I would say from the age of eight or nine, they have to be learning the pros, the cons, what they can do to help. Like one very brief thing, Neil, when I work a lot with, say, I know I say to 18, but I probably go up to about 22, 23. So when I'm on this 18 to 23s and I ask them, what do you do that makes you happy? So often they will look at me blankly and they really don't have a whole lot to say. So then I say, what, what used to do when you were 14, 15, whatever age, what used to love to do? Then they might give me a list of art or sport or music or whatever it might be. So I said, why don't you do it anymore? I don't have time. Now, that's a bit and, of a and then, But then you ask them, why you, don't you have time? Is it, do of they say, because I have to study all of the time? It's not that. But you just wake them up and say, hang on, you're six hours on your phone. Of course, you've time. But what are you going to prioritize? I said, if you stop doing the things that make you feel good, it's like a little light bulb goes off inside of you and you just feel unhappy. And that's one of the biggest feelings I have seen in that age group over the last four or five years, even pre-COVID, is unhappiness. But and are you saying to me everything. that social media is making those teens and young 20-somethings unhappy? Only if that is their only means. If they, I am a firm believer if they give that half hour or hour to whether it's their sport, their art, their music, whatever it may be, then off you go on your phone if you want to. Yeah. But you have to look after, I call it your soul when I'm working with kids. And, you know, I worked with a sixth-class group there a few years ago. And we went into this about the soul and we draw it up and they all write what they feel makes them happy and whatever. And then it was like, you know, well, if you stop doing these things, it's like that little light goes out and it's so important that you keep doing those things that make you feel good. And this little one afterwards wrote in an evaluation, oh, well, I now understand how important it is to feed my soul. It's basic things like that, but you're just trying to gently encourage them and educate them the importance that the responsibility is on each and every one of us to actually look after that part of ourselves. It's not a parent's responsibility to somebody while they're under their roof to give them that kind of choice and variety in their young lives? Well, like, we can all try, Neil, and I suppose, you know, it's very important for us to show by example, too. So if we're stressed and we're miserable and we're cranky, let us show our kids that to help us out of that, we turn to something that we love and we're passionate about, whether it's going for a walk or cooking or doing something for ourselves, but verbalise it and show them by example that there is ways to help ourselves with all of these feelings that we have because there is, but we have to educate them and I think we are losing out a lot on the show by example because unfortunately that's not going so well for a lot of people. You know, the kids aren't getting a lot of example as to how the family chill, how they relax or the mums or the dads or whoever might be stressed 
And, you know, I think from a, mm. from a mum's point of view, being a mum of four, yes, we can be stressed out of our head. There's no question about that. I know many a day I would have gone into my house and roared my head off at the kids. Mm. And I'd have to go back later and say, lads, I'm really sorry. That mm. was nothing to do, to do with me. I had a really crap day and I took it out me. Yeah. And yeah. that's something we have to really get good at because our kids walk away wondering, what have I done? You know, what did I do to set her off like that? Yeah. It's nothing to do with them. Yeah. And, we, you know, I just think it's really important that we do verbalize, it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to not feel okay because we all feel like that. But what responsibility we have to ourselves is to wake up and say, well, okay, what can I do that helps me feel better, that strengthens my day, that builds me up a little bit? A lot of that has to do with communication, doesn't it? It's massively important, Neil. I think now more than ever, mm. it is so important that, and you know, I'd often say to parents, because I know myself as well, if the kids start ranting on about something, I'll be jumping in with my twopence worth and my advice and my opinion before they've even probably said a sentence. Whereas when I began to learn about active listening and learning how to just keep my mouth shut, the difference, I cannot explain the difference if you actually allow those kids to finish what they started. Because a lot of the time they just want to be heard and they'll get it all out. They probably have even sorted it by the time they finish talking, but they don't need us to be jumping in. Covered a lot of, we covered a lot of ground this morning. I appreciate you taking the call. I'll pick this topic That's up with uh, Dr. Richard Hogan a few minutes' time. But uh, thanks as always, Eileen. Anybody that wishes to engage with Eileen Halley or see what she does, check out our website, jumpstartyourconfidence.com. Um, let me just take a quick, just a quick ad break. I'll talk to Eileen in a second. Thank you. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now on the new number, 0818-104-106. Okay, guys, I need you to get a pen and paper now, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes' time, or a pencil and paper. I'm going to read out Dr. Richard Hogan's uh, happiness challenge, and and then in the next 21 days, he hopes to change your mindset and make you a happier person going into 2021. So there's a series of questions. It's a 21-day uh, happiness challenge for the new year. Uh, he's doing it in association with uh, RSVP Live, and you can actually look, and I'll share the link to RSVP Live a little later on, but I think we'll be ready to um, actually get a pen and paper and then you're going to score yourself from one to ten. I'll tell you some more in a few minutes time, but if you want to take the happiness challenge, have a pen and paper handy and you can do it with me live on the air between now and uh, midday today. But just ahead of all of that, Eileen, good morning. Good morning, Neil. From 1958, as a very young girl, That's you right. worked in Sunbeam, is it? I was 18 when I went in. Was that your first job? No, no, no. I had a few other small ones before that. What did you do before it? I mean, obviously there were cork jobs, were they? Well, the one before that was the longest. uh, I was two and a half years in the old bridge restaurant. Ah, would you stop? On Patrick Street. I was. Would you believe I worked there? Well, I did. When I started to think that I might make an accountant, I worked for the the OKR group and they had the old bridge and the Shandon and the Kentucky restaurant downstairs and the Stella in Killarney and places like that. Yeah, it was about two and a half years there and I I was trained up to be a waitress and... You know, in the old bridge, right next to what would have been the smallest thing. Was, was, Was Miss Ferry there in those days? She was. She was. And Emma Gibb, didn't know Emmett Gibb, but Miss Ferry was always there, I'd say. She must have been 40, 50 years in the job. She was kind of like the boss of all of the food areas yes, of it. Yes, yes. But there was, um, oh God, um, uh, the Stokes owned it, did you see? Way back in the day, I suppose they did, yeah. It was bought no, out No, there was a, a Miss Rosborough. 
It's Rosborough. So you trained as a waitress there then, did you? I did. I went in as an ordinary kind of yeah. uh, helping... Out of school. ...in the kitchen and things like that. Yeah. And when and then did you decide that you wanted to go and work in the Sunbeam? Well, I had to wait until I was 18. Right. It wouldn't take me until I was 18. And when they did, what area in the Sunbeam did you work? I was in the underwear. Did you love it? I loved every bit of it. And fu- the people that you meet, you know, the friends you make. Oh, my God. It was... And the company, my God, they were brilliant, Neil. And did you and also I get mean, the weekly bath, you did? The which? They used to give the staff a bath every week, apparently. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they gave you a bit of carbolic soap and off we you all, went. We all, the different areas had their day. <laughs> and it was brilliant, Neil. It was really brilliant. And did you fall in love there or anything? Any bit of romance? I didn't. I met my love outside. <laughs> Where is he from? What did he do? He was from Ballyfehan and he worked for Pope Brothers. The garages? Yes. Selling cars well, and servicing cars. Fuel. He was in the fuel department. I gotcha. And did you did you end up in a did you have a flat on Patrick's Hill then? I did up over Salvage Chemist. Oh my god, that's Bridge Street so, isn't it? Yeah, Bridge Street. <laughs> and were you a young girl then or had you settled I down? Was, um, my my first child was one when we went into the flat in 66. Get away. And then I had a few more then after, but I still went to work. But then it came a time that I couldn't do full time. And you know what they done? <laughs> they actually brought a machine out to the flat to me. A sewing machine? A sewing machine <laughs> to have me work from home. Go and away. I've done that for a, for a year or so. And then the, um, the new 6 to 10 came in in the evening. And I was able to do that then. And I've done that on, up to 75. And they closed that then, you see. So you were so working from home way before these days ever came around. You were working from home back in the 60s. I was. <laughs> oh it my was God! A so great place to work. You, so you was. could you could have gone on to be a seamstress then if you want, if you wanted, couldn't you? Well, I I, I done uh, I was working and uh, making the long johns. Remember the long yeah, johns? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then we used to do the rugby sh- shirts. We used to make them as well. Go away! And why? Yeah. Wh- when did you stop then? Was it in the seventies? Seventy-five, seventy-five. The six, the six to ten closed. So I had to give up then because I couldn't do the full time with small children. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I just gave up then, and um, I didn't do much then. I just went in, went to work in uh, what's the name in the Metropole Hotel then for a bit. Back into hospitality, you went. Yeah, yeah, but mainly in in, in behind these behind the scenes, as they say. <laughs> ah, that's fantastic, though. You and must have made great friends though that. in Sunbeam. Yeah. I did. I loved And did you get involved in Tops of the Town or anything like that? I didn't. I never got into them. <laughs> and I could have, you know, because I, I do sing like. <laughs> You'd have been well able. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I never at the time, I never ventured into it. <laughs> oh, listen, it's great to have a bit of nostalgia because, of course, I many, know, many people worked there. I listening to Kevin there a while ago. Lovely guy. And Breda. Dear girl, is it Breda? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you yeah. too. And you reared, a, you reared all the family and they're all gone now, I suppose, doing their own thing? Oh, they're all, they're all married now with their own families. 
Happy days. You know, it's Happy just brilliant. Days. You know, great memories there, Neil. Well, listen, lovely chatting with you. Thanks you so too, much Neil. for taking Thanks the call. Thanks very much, love. Bye, Eileen. Happy New Year to you. You too. Bye. Calling Red FM Studio? Call the new number. 0818-104-106. Don't worry. Be happy now. Yes. The happiness challenge. Don't worry. Don't be worry. If it only was that easy. Uh, of course, everybody starts off with the best of intentions, the new year, the new resolutions, deciding to change your lives. But there's a hard wiring inside in your system that makes that very, very difficult. And that hard wiring, according to Richard Hogan, is in there since your childhood. But it can be changed and fixed. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Love to talk to you. Happy New Year. And you too, my man, to you and all of the family. So here we are, um, not too far away from Blue Monday, as you describe it. Why is 17th of January Blue Monday, incidentally? Well, I, I suppose a, a, a couple of factors feed into that one. Probably the resolutions that we launched out with such gusto have begun to dissipate. We're slowly slipping back to those old ways of, of being and we know that are good for us and the financial requirements that have been placed on us because of Christmas and yeah. the, I suppose the way the sunlight uh, you know hits the earth that particular in January. The bills the start coming in around then of course and uh, exactly it's a long month before you get paid. <laughs> exactly. So there's a lot of factors creeping into it, I suppose. And you're not a fan of resolutions, I was reading, no? No, I'm not. I, I suppose in my own analysis, and if you look at the research, over 90% of, uh, of um, resolutions end in failure. And the majority of us, Neil, really know that we need to change. We know that there's certain things that we do in our lives that make us unhappy. And we know that we want to change. But often when we launch out in resolutions, we do so without good strategic planning. And we do so, uh, you know, probably we, we launch out with too much restriction and very quickly it's unsustainable. So we fall back and that actually makes it feel more hopeless. Yeah, I know you yeah, were saying, you were saying in, in RSVP Live, I was reading, you were saying instead of having, yeah. say, for instance, a dry January, why not just cut back? Instead of giving exactly. up, cut back and say maybe with food, or, I don't know, maybe yeah. even with fags, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's more, much more sustainable. I mean, if you... Something I often talk about is if you have a dry January and you go back, let's say, with great gusto in February to catch up on what you've missed out, I mean, you're just damaging pointless. your health there. Yeah, pointless. Yes, pointless, yeah. So here we are with the challenge. Now, I've shared the link, the RSVP Hogan sure. link, right, with the 10 questions. Yeah. And I put them up on our Facebook page and our Twitter page. And it's only 10 questions and you can do it mm. quite quickly. But what, what difference is this going to make to people's lives? Is it in the sense that we have... 70,000 thoughts a day and the vast majority of them are negative or what? Yeah, well, I, I actually th I do think, Neil, I spent a lot of time developing this content for RCP and it's based in neuroscience and scientific research. It's also based in my own clinic experience working as a family psychotherapist. Uh, and, you know, I do think it's going to bring in a lot of change because it's designed to get in there and rewire that exact what you said about 70,000 thoughts, the majority of those thoughts, 90% in fact, are what you thought yesterday. Mm. So there's about a 10% chance of actually changing. I, th I think that's what happens with New Year's resolutions, Neil. People launch out on them with the best intentions, but they don't understand the impulses that are driving them. They don't understand the way they think. And so they're just like, they're absolutely doomed to failure because you have to get in there and understand how you think. And a huge part of how you think, Neil, is the family that you came out of. And I'm a systemically trained family psychotherapist. So on the first day of the challenge, I get in there and I ask people to draw out their genogram, which is like a family tree, and to look at you know, the family that you came from and to think about the paradigms, the ideas, the beliefs that you developed about yourself in those early moments of your formation. And what crucial. could those negative ideas be? Uh, you referenced like, not, not being good, good enough. I'm not smart I'm not enough. Good I'm enough. not funny I'm enough. Not I'm not good looking enough. enough. 
Exactly. I'm not good enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not funny. People don't genuinely like me. I'm weak. I'm vulnerable. I'm not so strong. You know, people will find out who I am. All of those terribly negative things. And what I often say to clients when they come into my clinic, would you take advice, Neil, from an eight-year-old about your romantic life or about your financial well-being? Of course you wouldn't. But that eight-year-old self is driving you all the time. Those impulses came along very early in your formation. And you have to get in there because in neuroscience, we say, like, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. We have to get in there, rewire how we think about ourselves. So the way we feel about ourselves now was dictated by our thoughts and feelings before we even reached the age of 10. Yeah, very much so. And also the family, family that you came out of and the story. I mean, Neil, there's nothing more important than the story you tell yourself about who you are. And that was written a long time ago. And so when you launch out in a resolution, if you don't understand that impulse or that, those ideas, you're, you, you know, you're just going to fall back again into those old ways of being. So why, why is it important that, that you come from a, a good family? Is it because they, like for instance, you're saying you could have a brother or a sister or a parent who didn't like you or constantly put you down or didn't give you love, is it? But even in the position of the family, I was the, I was the youngest, say, of three brothers, right? Um, so even in, even in that position, you learn things about who you are. You get told things about your position. And you, you begin to tell yourself about, you know, you, you begin to tell yourself very important things about who you are. And exactly what you're saying, that you develop these ideas about who you are through the narratives of what you hear. I mean, if your family are... And then the next thing is you go into school, and school is going to label you incredibly, you know, negatively. And, you know, what I'd always say is that labels, labels don't predict the future, they write them. So you have to get in there and think about all the destructive labels that you meet. Like, I do a lot of work, Neil, in the, say, corporate field and do psychometric testing. And I'd meet loads of really, as we would say, highly performing individuals who would have the underlying paradigm they're going to get found out. And when you, un- when you unpack it, it's been incredibly restrictive for their whole life. It's been holding them back. And when you unpack it, you free them from that paradigm. And it's an incredible thing to see somebody beginning to embrace their life fully. Yeah. Well, what about if you are actually currently surrounded by negativity or, or negative people or people who drag you down? Okay, you talk about when you were eight years old and mm. you know, those ideas being planted in your brain now. But what if people are living it now? How can they change that now? Well, exactly. And uh, what, there's a very famous study called the Farmington Study where it's, it's all about how the heart gives out this, um, this positive field. And if you're surrounded by negative people, it's going to bring you down. And I suppose what I'd always say to people, obviously, if it's your partner, it's about trying to bring them up. Right? And that's why this, why this 21 Day Happiness Challenge might be for both of you. And if you're positive and your partner is negative, I think it would be a very nice thing to bring them into because it will help them to understand the way they think. The difference between being positive, Neil, and negative is just like how you came through that family system, how you oriented yourself through school, and then the story that you tell yourself about yourself. So it's very important if you, have, if you are surrounded, and say, say if your partner is negative, that you help them out of it because they're, they're going to bring you down. They're going to make you negative also. You, you, you talk about cutting negative people out of your life, though. That would be yeah. very hard if it's your spouse. Well, <laughs> I'm not suggesting cutting your spouse out of your life if they're negative. I suppose what I'm saying there is bring your spouse up, help them. But say for others then in your social friend network, is it a case of getting rid of them from your life, phasing them out? Well, if people are negative, Neil, right, and all they see around them is like, you know, very negative things. And, you know, how you know, what I'd say to people always, how you know friends that are really important in your life and that are productive. When you have something to celebrate, how are they? Do they bring you down or do they celebrate with you? It's a very good indicator about the level of friendships that you have around you. If they can't celebrate your successes and they're only there when you're down, I would say they're not real friends. They're not actually there to support you. They're not actually interested in your success. So I would say, yeah, cut them out of your life. 
and surround yourselves with people who want to celebrate you. We only have one life. All the research is that this is it. Why not surround yourself with people who are very positive and supportive and want the best for you? How are you going to get people to change their thought process from I'm not good enough to I am good enough, I am worthy, I'm actually attractive? How how does that work? And I think that's what's so unique about this happiness challenge, Neil. I think, you know, how did it start that you began to think I'm not worthy? Well, you had a thought. Someone said something to you, you had a thought, and then you looked around for confirmation bias, and something came back and, and reaffirmed that fear, and all of a sudden that thought became a pathway, and the only thought about who you are when you think about yourself. Now, in this happiness challenge, I'm rewiring that. On the first day, we look at family. On the second day, I look at the five personality traits. And then on the third day... I get in and look at all the ideas that you hold about yourself that you know, because we all know them. We know the ideas that hold us back. We know why we don't go for promotion. If we really analyze it, we know we don't think we're good enough. We, we don't want to be upset with the failure when we get rejected as we see it. And so I get in there and I start to disrupt that. And what I do is I get people to write out the paradigms, the beliefs that they know are negative. And then I ask them to look for three examples during the day uh, to, to reaffirm the positive examples of those, what you want to say about yourself. Now you're rewiring you're rewiring that, uh, you, you know, you're rewiring your, your, your way of thinking. Because the brain, I suppose it can be quite lazy if you say that it just deals with the same thought process as yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And it, 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 I often thought that the brain always defaults to negative, doesn't it? Naturally. Well, yeah, no, it is. Absolutely, Neil. That's a very perceptive thing because, you know, when we were starting out in this human journey, we had to constantly look for threat because our lives were in imminent threat all the yeah, time. So we yeah. just, we developed hardwired, hardwired stuff there to look for threat, and we're always interested in threat. You know, if you read a Shakespearean tragedy, you're very, inter- you're very rarely interested in the really good characters. It's always the ones that are threatening that but, you're interested in. Yeah, but how then do we all meet in our lives? People who are incredibly positive, always have been, always see the good things in life, always are in great form, always are an optimistic. The glass is always half full. Yeah, I'm one of those people, I think, myself. Uh, I think probably epigenetics, because it's a combination of your environment and also the biology, the way, you, you, the way you've developed your thinking and how you perceive the world, because we all perceive the world differently. And, you know, it's, it's kind of been what's been confirmed for you, what's been reaffirmed for you as a child growing up. And then I think, you know, a little bit of personality. If, you, if you're more open and you're more agreeable, you've probably got a tendency to think more altruistically about other people and be a little bit more open to things being successful and working out for you. We, we kind of do need, though, a bit of anxiety and a bit of stress in our life, don't we? And like, if we didn't need to worry, we wouldn't have the ability to worry. Is it about, is it about getting the balance right? Oh, yeah. I would never say we're going to eradicate anxiety because that's like getting onto a flight there, a Ryanair flight, and saying, like, you know, there's no, there's, no navigate, there's no warning system. It's going to be fine. You wouldn't get onto it. You'd yeah. be terrified, right? Yeah. So we, we, we all need that warning system. And that, that's just about, you know, longevity and uh, survival. It's not, about, it's not about eradicating that. It's about these negative thoughts that hold us back. It's about achieving happiness. I think as Irish people, Neil, the reason I really wanted to do this when I spoke to RCP about it is that I wanted it to be free. And RCP were very, very sure about that, that, you know, people have had a very difficult 20 months, two years, that this was going to be free and that this is going to make change in people's lives. And as I set out to write the content, that's exactly what I was driven by, you know, helping people to work out some of the negative ideas that hold them back that they feel prisoners to. And the biggest thing that in all my research that comes out is we need to be connected to each other. And, you know, that's a huge part of the study. I think at the end of the day, though, um, happiness is about learning to love yourself, isn't it? It really is, Neil. It's, it's about unpacking all the negative labels. It's about connecting to people around you. 
I think happiness is really, it's really in our connections with people. We're mammals. We love to be connected. When we're disconnected, um, you know, that's why the virus... We've seen that, yeah. Yeah, we've seen it, you know, because we love to connect. And so we, we have to look at our relationships and try to intentionally heal them if there's a rupture. Okay, there are 10 questions that I'm sharing now. It's a 21-day challenge. You sure. have to give a little bit of your time every day. But the first thing people need to do is answer honestly the 10 questions. That, you know, how, like one of them is in general, I consider myself not very happy or very happy. And you rate it 1 to 10. Compared to mm. my peers, I consider myself less happy or happier. Um, then you talk about this question about the family, then the meaning of work, um, you know, mm. as to whether you're you like it or you don't like it or you're happy in it or not. Uh, the th- there's a question. I would like to change my life, but really, I don't know what to do. Uh, if you answer quest- that question by saying, yes, I'd love to change my life, then it's either. Yes, one is for true and 10 is for not true at all. Now, there are 10 in total. I, I, I did the, the challenge, right? And it's, okay. the algorithm marks you then out of, out of 100. And the first time I did it, I got 84, right? That's great. Uh, no, and then I thought about it and I said, no, that's, that's way too high because I can't be that happy. So <laughs> I, I did it again then and it was tougher on myself and I got 76. Have I made a hames of it? No, I mean, they're very good scores. They're very desirable uh, percentile that you're scoring in. That's super, and I, th- and I think that's the way we want to be. We, you shouldn't, you should, again, that's an idea that I can't be that happy. Of course you can be that happy, and that's what the course is, that's what the 21-day course is about. I think as Irish people, we have that tendency to think if I'm that happy, something bad will happen to me. You know, and so I can't be that happy because well, I'm going to get I'm going to get sideswiped. No, I like, just thought no, that can't be right. I, you know, I need surely be to God. I need more work. I mean, I I, I gave ten for things like when I wake up, I'm ready for the day. So that's a ten. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, is there a gap between who I am and who I want to be? That's kind of like an eight. You know, I, I'm kind of resolved to the type of person that I am. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so I scored high with regards to the job that I do. Well, I gave that a 10 because I couldn't think mm. of anything. So I scored high in other areas and low in, in some then. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, why, the, that's uh, why we did like that, so that you can actually look at the empirical evidence of your life and look at what's going on in your life and see why you're scoring high and why you're maybe a little bit lower and how to work on that and to bring it up. I mean, you can be a 90, you can be, you can be 100 here in the scale for sure. And that's something that we're going to be working towards. And over the course of the 21 days, it's a three-week uh, challenge. We'll be, we'll be asking you to complete the survey again halfway through to see if your levels of happiness have increased. And then at the end, again, there'll be another survey at the end to see where you are now on the scale and has, have these ideas and these tasks and tools that I've equipped you with, have they actually improved your levels of happiness? But you're not going I mean, my first one was 82, the second one was 76. You're, you're not going to get everybody to 100. No, you're not. No, of course not. But you might get a 50 to a 70 or a 60 to an 8, is it? I, I believe that I, I honestly believe in the content because it's really you know it's, it's based in scientific research, it's based in neuroscience, it's based in my experience working clinically. I know that that the content is going to help you to figure out some of the ideas that you hold about yourself and improve your levels of happiness. Yeah, you don't and want people, again, you don't want and, people to be too happy either because they can be quite <laughs> annoying people. <laughs> the whistling tourist, but um, <laughs> but I, I think you know again happiness is, is something that fluctuates up and down. It's never going to be a static thing. It's always going to depend on your environmental issues and what's going on internally, and you know all of those things. But that's that's obviously a very important part of this whole happiness challenge to get help you maybe to get more of a balance with it all. Okay, so that kicks off. It's there for people to share. It's already up on our social media platforms. It's up on RSVP Live. It's their link, incidentally. Oh, it takes a few minutes to actually answer the questions. What happens after you do the questions? For the survey, you mean, is it? Yeah, I mean, it takes you two or three minutes to answer. Then it comes back with your result. What yeah. do people do next? 
then they click onto the actual 21 day challenge. So every day then for every day at eight o'clock on RCP Live, you click in and there'll be a new um, idea, new task, new tool designed to develop your levels of and to build on each other day. It's going to follow on from each other's day. You know, the day before, it's going to build on it, build on it, and build on it. So every day for 21 days, there'll be a new, a new video. And it's, it's only about four or five minutes designed, you know, really, they're dense enough now. You, you would need to be taking it down. You can access it at any time and go back and read over the material and, uh, you know, hear what, what's been said. And then I'll be giving people tasks to do over the course of that 24 hours. And in what way should they feel different about themselves in 21 days' time? I think, honestly, Neil, um, they'll have deeper insights into their impulses. They'll have a deep insight into their personality traits, because I, lo- I look at that second day, the five personality traits, and how they can leverage that to become you know, more balanced in who they want to be in the world or actually improve their, on their personality. And people think that personality is like a, a concrete thing and it can't change and it's static. Well, it's not actually, and intentionally you can, you can actually get in there and change your personality and leverage one of your personalities and understand if you are, say, high in agreeableness, let's say, I think this is what happens to a lot of women, is that they're high in agreeableness and it brings a lot of suffering into their lives because they take on so much. That's right. The good, the good mother, the good daughter, the That's good right. wife, they, they take on so much because they're agreeable and it brings an awful lot of suffering because they become people pleasers and, uh, you know, nobody respect nobody... No, you know, nobody respects the people pleaser, least of all the person who's pleasing everybody and they become to resent people. And, and so it's really about getting in and understanding all of these impulses that drive us. I'm just wondering uh, quite seriously as to whether people might be put in a situation where they end up uh, having to revisit uh, a lot of trauma in their life. Are you, are you worried that that might happen? Um, no, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, it's not, I'm not doing like psychotherapy every day. You know, it's, it's not like that. But I, I, do ask, so I do ask on day 10, to think about a rupture in your life that you know, you know, we all say we have an rupture with our family members, myself included, you know, you're saying, ah, oh, it doesn't bother me. But the reality is we all know that it does and it's there and it's simmering and it's always in your life. It's in your life with your family, it's in your life with your kids, it's in your life with your friends. And so I'm asking people, look at that rupture and how could you reconnect with that person? Are you saying reach out to somebody in your life that yeah, you've fallen out exa- with? Exactly. Reconnect with someone who's important enough to bring back into your life. And because um, I, I don't believe you can be fully open and happy when you have that rupture in your life. And so on day 10, that's what I'll be asking people to think about. A fascinating challenge. It really and truly is. Well, it's there for people to engage if they're so with. We might, we wish we, we should talk again then when we get back to the end of it. Yeah, sure. In 21 days, Neil, I'd love to talk to you and see how your, how your uh, listeners got on and see if they have found it uh, helpful or not. Fantastic. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving it the time. It's free of charge, lads, should you wish to engage. Richard, thanks for taking the call. Look after yourself for now. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Neil. Did you do the test yourself? I did, yeah. And I've, right. given, you, I've given you my number. You give me yours. <laughs> I start 72. <laughs> God, I'm mortified. I even, got, I even got higher than a psychotherapist. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot more honest than me, perhaps, Richard. I'd do it a third time, maybe. <laughs> Maybe, Neil. Stop cheating. All right. That's me, the cheater. Cheers, my man. Dr. Richard Hogan. We'll revisit again in 21 days' time. We have the RSVP Happiness Challenge link up on our Facebook and Twitter now. Check it out. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Okay, two 150 euro vouchers for Satori Clinic. They are just newly opened at Langford Row in Cork City. Just, uh, just Langford Row is just there by Summerhill South. All right, so that's where you're going to go. And they do all sorts of different therapies and skills, including acupuncture and cupping. And it could help your life for the better. And that's what we've been doing a lot this morning, trying to help people's lives for the better, certainly with the happiness challenge. So, two vouchers worth 150 euro every single day, and it's all based on new. 
the new year and the new you. So these three songs, please, artists and titles in the right order. You got a friend in me. You got a friend in me. now 0818104106 will take callers 10 and 11 artists and titles in the right order for 150 euro voucher each for Satori Clinic I'm going to love you and leave you but just one quick call before we do so Tony good morning morning Neil how are you I'm well thanks happy new year to you so one thing you realised this morning is there's a lot of doom and gloom and negativity where everywhere Ah, yeah, you know, radio, TV, newspapers, online, it's, it's, it's surrounding, it's everywhere in society. Have you a suggestion to make it better? Yes, I do, actually. I was actually, this is something that was, um, that was, myself and my grandfather were talking about this, actually. Um, we were still, we were thinking, why not one hour a week, on a Friday or a Monday, whatever, just come up with a segment of good news. Just or people coming on telling their stories and you know making people laugh, bringing joy back to the place because it, everywhere you look, every single day, every single hour, it's COVID this, COVID that, this is ever happening, you know, and it's nothing but as you said, doom and gloom. But why don't we bring back an hour every week whereby people can come on the air, give advice, give some funny life advice, tell little stories about how they found themselves in in situations that were slightly embarrassing, you know, bring laughter back to the air, basically. Um, I'm sure you got my text earlier on. That I did. About it. I did. I did. You said over the last two years, we've talked a lot about mental health and need to care for it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, your suggestion is an hour. You're saying, listen, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, and I would give anything to have 15 hours of broadcast a week where there was nothing but just good news and happiness. From time to time, we have ha- I've had to deal with COVID. But I only mentioned COVID once this morning, and that was an email. And other than mm-hmm. that, I'm desperately trying to engage with people about stories in their lives that have nothing at all to yep. do yeah, yeah. with the I negativity. Be, yeah, no. You know, it's like... A- uh, yes, but as I did say in my text, though, <clears throat> you are somebody who has, over the years, championed an awful lot uh, well, of situations for the people of the city. That's kind of you to say thank you. But I'm mad. I'm mad. I, wish, I wish I could do what you were saying all of the time. And that's why I encourage yeah, people yeah, to yeah, yeah. share their stories, you know, and that's why I'm delighted to yeah. talk to you because you're emphasizing that as a listener. People, ha- let's hear more from you about things going on in your life that aren't stress or anxiety or worry or sickness but even if we could set up something whereby let's say on a Friday for the last hour of your show from 11 to 12 something along the lines of that because you know it's a Friday it's the weekend it's got a feel good factor you send people off you send your listeners off into the weekend on a happy note it makes you feel good it makes them feel good and it it puts positivity out there over over the airways like Listen, I'm all for that. And by chatting with you, hopefully that will plant, you know, plant the seed in people's heads that they will engage more with stories about their lives and happy things. And people love a bit of nostalgia and stories. And, you know, it's like it's great to hear other people's life stories. I think I've always and I think there's a story in everybody. So it encouraged people to get in touch. Listen, thanks for that, Tony. Thanks. Do stay in touch, though, and keep me on top of my game. All right. (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right. Happy New Year, Neil. Cheers, pal. Take care. <laughs> Listen, just be, and bear that in mind. He's absolutely right. We want more positivity, and I'm all for it. I really and truly am. It would actually be very easy over the last two years or so to whatever to to fill airtime with nothing but COVID. Believe me, that would have been the easy thing to do. 
it's challenging to do the other. You know, they shoot pioneers, I suppose. Randy Newman, you've got a friend of me. New Order, Blue Monday and ABBA's Happy New Year were the three songs this morning. We have 150 euro vouchers for Satori Clinic for uh, Laura Leahy at Foster's Haven and Cove and Adrian Murphy in Sunday as well. So one do- well done, you guys. We have two more vouchers to give away tomorrow. Our lines will stay open at 0818104106. You can text 0868104106. Do email if you have something on your mind or a sh- story to share. Neil at redfm.ie. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.